on the Empire Podcast this week, do you want to hear Charlie Brooker talking about Bandersnatch? Press 1 for yes, and press 2 also for yes, because you don't have a choice. You're listening to Charlie Brooker talking about Bandersnatch. It was utterly bloody baffling. It made no sense. And we're not kidding, man. We speak to Destroyer star and all-round Hollywood legend Nicole Kipman as she finds out exclusively that James Dyer is an idiot. Who is this? Who is he? Empire? Dreadful hacks. <laughs> All that and more on the movie podcast has been overlooked for an Oscar yet again. Honestly, it's almost as if they don't have a category for best podcast. And we'd be shoe-ins. Shoe-ins! <laughs> Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week I'm joined by not one, not two, not three colleagues of such lethal... No, it is three. Hang on, I can't count. One, two, three. Three colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up, we have our geek queen... Our resident super Hamilton natural expert. It is Helen O'Hara. How are you? That is a crossover that I would watch. Yes. Hello. Lin-Manuel Miranda singing songs about demons and then his shirt falls off to reveal four nipples. No, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Because he's a nipple demon. That's (laughs) not a thing, is it? I am not throwing away my shirt. <laughs> okay, that one's good. Yeah, I got there. Yeah, the, def- the nipple demon thing was terrible. All that right. didn't make any sense. I mean, because if you had lots of extra nipples, that's just tr- traditionally a sign of a witch. Is it? Mm. Or a cat. <laughs> or a pig. Or that's true. Or a cow. Or Scaramanga. Okay. Welcome to Identifying Animals <laughs> with the Empire Podcast team. It's exciting. Uh, who else is here? Oh, I talked about a world famous all-round icon and legend in my introduction. And I was referring to Nicole Kidman, but really, I should have been referring to the star of Jurassic World, one of the all-time highest-grossing films ever, mm. Nick Dissemlian, who plays Edmund in that film, who hasn't been moved by his performance as man-clapping mm. out of focus. Yeah. Overlooked at the Oscars yet again. If they um, have a man-clapping out of focus category... You'd be shooing. And I haven't been invited to go and watch and clap. That would have been really good. Front row, <laughs> next to Jack Nicholson. Slightly. Uh, be yeah. amazing. Yeah. How are you? Good. I'm okay. I'm all right. Thanks, Chris. That's good. Good to hear. Good to hear. And um, let me just see. Check my notes here. James Dyer is also here, which is nice, I guess. Hi, Chris. How are you? I, I'm good. It's nice to hear you talking about uh, about Bandersnatch, which, of course, we covered in depth on the Pilot TV podcast a few weeks ago, which is uh, which is nice. Jane, make a note. Uh, cut out reference to, what's it called? Uh, the Pilot TV podcast. Pilot TV yeah. podcast. Yeah. Do, you, do you want to hear what we're doing this no, week? No, not particularly. Do you, do you want to hear what we're talking about? No. No? Is Nothing? it uh, Amazon's hit car show, The Grand Tour? No. Did you see that? This week they mm. caused a... Ferrara because they, they, the Grand Tour came back and their hashtag was Amazon's Hit Car Show and it was a joke because you look at it and it looks like Amazon Shit Car Show. Mm. That's funny. It's funny, isn't it? No, we won't be talking about that. We will be talking about Night Flyers, which is George R. R. Martin's new TV series. Oh, as well as Russian Dolls and Pure and Camping. Mm. And you can hear all about that on hashtag James Dyer's Hit TV podcast. It's <laughs> good. See what yeah. we did there. Yeah. Mm. Uh, which is available on uh, some podcast apps. Look it up. Uh, look it up yourselves, lazy fuckers. Uh, all right. So uh, everyone's here. We're all assembled. That's good. Should we have a question? Sure. This week's question helpfully plays into the fact that the Oscar nominations were released this week. Well, because the question comes from longtime podcast listener and occasional question asker Carl Jackson, aka at Carl from Wolves. And he asks, with the Oscar nominations being announced this week, who slash what would you like to have been nominated? Now, 
this means we could just chat about the Oscar nominations. Uh, and at some point we can answer the question because I had actually planned this. I've made six categories entirely of people who you could say were snubbed by the Oscars. And we're going to go through that as we talk category by category. But okay. anyway, what, what, do we, what do we think of it? It's a weird year. It feels really odd. It feels like a really weird mix of films. I'm disturbed that some films I think should not have done super well seem to be up for Best Picture. And other films, notably If Beale Street Could Talk, I think are relatively snubbed because I would give that practically everything right now. But I'm encouraged to see Roma and The Favourite mm. both doing well because I like both of those very, very much. And they do seem to be the two that have the best chance of winning Best Picture at the moment, I hope. So that's good. I, I think the, the acting categories are pretty strong. I think especially Best Actress, I think that's a really, really strong lineup of women. There are many other great performances that could have been in there, you know, the likes of Tony Collette, people like that. Uh-huh. But I am very encouraged by that. Best Director... Best Picture lineups I'm less overall enamoured with. I can't pretend to be an Oscar prognosticator like yourself, Helen, but what I found quite interesting was when all the bohemian rhapsodising happened at the Golden Globes, everyone just kind of rolled their eyes because the Golden Globes, I guess, at the best of times, are a shit show at the fuck factory. Whereas the Oscars, <laughs> you don't normally expect that from. And funnily enough, obviously, Bohemian Rhapsody is now nominated for Best Picture, which is objectively bonkers. And yet it doesn't seem to have kicked yeah. off in quite the same way as it did with the Golden Globes. Oh, I don't why know. Is, why are they getting a bit of a free pass? I think because they know that it's not going to win, for one <laughs> thing. But there's an argument to be made that it might be possibly the worst movie to ever be nominated for a Best Picture. <laughs> yeah, there's, it's down there, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. really... There's that's something in the good. water, isn't it? I mean, there's something... What's going on? I, I, mean, do, I don't understand that nomination. I really, really don't. And unlike, yeah, like you say, we shouldn't have to worry about it winning Best Picture. It hasn't got the matching Best Director nomination, thank yeah. God. But, I mean, it's a bizarre choice. It's, it's an interesting list because it's kind of, there's sort of the films that are very critically acclaimed and then they're the ones that everyone has just ganged up on. Mm. So people seem to have turned on Green Book mm. and Vice to a lesser extent and obviously Bohemian Rhapsody. Why? Why are they turning on Vice? I didn't love it. Didn't you? No. I thought it was fantastic. I mm. really, really loved it. I was very pleased to see that getting so many nominations. I mean, the Black Panther thing is one that a lot of people were talking about, and that's an interesting one. I think it in Best Picture is nice, but it feels tokenistic to me, because, I mean, it is, it's not even the best Marvel movie that came out last year. Yeah, respect to Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yes, Ant-Man and the Wasp is, of course, what I'm thinking <laughs> of. But uh, I get why it's put in there, and it has had a crossover resonance. That I mean, Infinity War is objectively better, but... <laughs> is it, though? But, yes, I mean, it is. I love, I love Infinity War. It is, it's it is, a better film. It is a better it's film. A better it film. is objectively a better film. Yes. But is it objectively a better film? It is, yes. <laughs> it's objectively Speaking a better film. for all humans. Nick, what do you think? I think Black Panther is a more significant film in terms of what it represents, and I yep. think that's why it's been nominated. But yeah, I prefer yes. Infinity War. It is, it is significant. I think the crossover appeal it's had for people who would not normally go and see a Marvel movie but clearly went out mm. to see this mm. means that it is an important movie. But this is an award for Best Picture, and it isn't. It's a good oh, film. No, it's I, a good film. It's, you know, Infinity War juggles so many different tones. It goes mm. from being really funny to mm. really dark and back again constantly, and it's masterful, obviously, how many you know characters it has. Mm. Black Panther's fine, but it doesn't approach... No, Black Panther level. is extremely good, and I have... Zero argument with it being in that list, actually. Why couldn't it have both been on the list? Quite why right. Couldn't, why yeah. couldn't you found a, a, a spot for Infinity War, which, you know, it's not about rewarding films that do really, really well at the box office, but it did. And it was also, as with Black Panther, it really had a cultural moment. Mm. 
Why not just stick them both in the list? You know they're not going to win. Give it Could a, be a Return a of the King situation. They might be waiting for Endgame. <laughs> That's, That's it. it. <laughs> 13 Oscars this time next year. Um, I am really pleased, though, to see Black Panther get acknowledgement for its costume and production design, both of which yeah. are astonishing and were overlooked at other ceremonies. So I think that's really, really, really good news. Yes, uh, there. Those, those are those are fantastic. Nominees. I think it has a yeah, shot of winning in those categories, to mm. be honest, as yeah. well. But the Endgame thing has really intrigued mm. me. That's really intrigued me. I think next year Endgame is going to sweep the board. Thirteen Oscars, <laughs> a new record, and the first movie to ever win for Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor. Best Supporting Supporting Actor, Best Supporting 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 Actor. Basically, I'm saying there's a big cast, so they're going to give lots of awards. Right, out. I see. Yeah. Okay, Best yeah, Gauntlet. Thanks. Best Gauntlet. Best, best Thanos. Stones. Oh, it's got to be in the running for Best Thanos, right? You'd well, think. Well, I don't know. Hmm. There's a lot of good <laughs> Thanoses out there, Chris. There is, of course, to Thanos. Thanks for everything, <laughs> Julie Newmar. There's that coming out. There's fried green Thanoses at the Whistle Stop Cafe. That's also a big frontrunner next year. Yeah, that's a, I mean, these are big films. The curious case of Thanos, you know. <laughs> it's yeah. a risk. Who knows? Uh, should we go through category by category and just uh, briefly, not all the categories. So we start off with best live action short. No, let's go through um, the best live action short, of course, is Martin. That's fair. It is fair. That is true. It is true. You can't argue with it. All right, let's go. Um, best director: mm. Mm. Spike Lee for Black Klansman, Adam McKay for White Vice President. Sorry, Vice. Uh, Pavel Pavlikovsky for Cold War. Mm. Alfonso Cuaron for Roma, and Yorgos Lanthimos for The Favorite. Mm. Happy with that? Needs more yeah. Barry Jenkins, but otherwise it's. Uh, no. Very solid list. I'd, I'd add Barry Jenkins. I would add some of the women, actually, who have had amazing years this year. Uh, Lynn Ramsey, I think, did a, a stunning job. Deborah Granick for Leave No Trace. I think it's a, it's appalling that that's been overlooked to the extent that it has been. Yep. You know, they had the chance. If people are talking about them like they're being extremely forward-thinking and, and inclusive this year, and that's true to an extent, but mm-hmm. Best Director shows there's still quite a long way to go. I think Lynn Ramsey could well have been nominated, but it's very hard to quibble with that list of five Yeah, I mean, they're, the they're very... Time. Well, I would quibble with Adam McKay personally, but, you know, that's just me. The man had a heart attack to make that film. Nice. <laughs> no. Yeah. He nearly no, died to entertain No, you. he didn't. The film saved his life. The film's done enough for him already. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> and this is uh, Spike Lee's first Oscar nomination. Which is yeah, crazy. Which that is, is unbelievable. Mad. So mad. that is amazing to see him in there. You're right. I mean, it could go to Spike just because there is that sense of him. Sort of having, lifetime achievement thing. Yeah, it's the sort of Martin Scorsese, we're mm. embarrassed we haven't given this to you 30 years ago. They should be award. more embarrassed they gave it to The Departed. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I'm not <laughs> going to argue with that, actually. Yeah. But um, it is embarrassing that they didn't give him a nod for Do the Right Thing, and therefore they might just give him the. They the might just do the right thing. They might yeah. just do the right thing. So I'm going to do my little snubbed category now. Sure. These are five people. Uh, this is not to denigrate in any way the people who have been nominated that say they all deserve the nominations, sure. but you could easily have four a category with these six names. Okay, so okay. Deborah Granick, I'm going to yep. include Deborah Granick in that. Paul King for Paddington 2. Paddington 2 <laughs> should be up for every category ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't understand what Oscar were thinking. They're idiots. They're idiots. Morons. Uh, it was never going to be in the Oscar running, sadly, but it, it, it should have been. It should have been. Hugh Grant should have been. Mm. We'll get to that. Uh, Christopher McQuarrie for Mission Impossible Fallout. I mean, that's an astonishing achievement in direction. And that's what this is about, right? Yeah. It's about acknowledging that. Bart Layton for American Animals. To pull that film together, the way he did it, the melding sort of documentary and fiction, great. Lynn Ramsey for You Were Never Really Here, Mm -hmm. one of my favourite films from last year. And Boots Riley for Sorry to Bother You. Amazed you didn't say Ryan Coogler. What about Bradley Cooper? What about B. Coops and and Rye Coog? Okay, so let's stick Ryan Coogler on the list and let's stick Bradley Cooper on the list as well and then call the whole thing off. 
Uh, let's move on very, very quickly now then to best animated feature. This is interesting. Mm. Ralph Breaks the Internet. Yeah. Mirai. Mm. Incredibles 2. Yeah. I Love Dogs. Mm. And Spider-Man mm-hmm. Into the Spider-Verse. Yes. Yes. Now, the good thing is that this won the Producers Guild Award for Animated Film, uh, which is traditionally a pretty good you know, indicator of which way the wind is blowing. Mm-hmm. Having said that, it isn't this year in the Best Documentary category because the winner there was Won't You Be My Neighbour and it isn't even nominated for the Oscar, which is bizarre. Mm-hmm. But I hope that that gives Spider-Man an edge because I think it is head and shoulders above the other nominees. Yeah, skyscrapers year. above. Like, not being funny, Incredibles 2 isn't very good. Rap breaks the internet. It's good. It's fine. It's good. But, I mean, Spider-Verse is transcendental. Mm. So, yeah, forget about Ralph. I think if Spider-Verse doesn't win... We will break the internet. Yeah. Everyone will break the internet. <laughs> it's uh, it's got to win. I just want to give a shout out to Teen Titans. Go to the movies. Oh well, yeah, it was snubbed. That is the sad snub yeah. in that category. Perhaps the animation isn't up to the Academy <laughs> standards. Uh, <laughs> Teen Titans it, don't go to the Oscars. <laughs> but it absolutely should have been nominated for best original song, for upbeat inspirational song about life, uh, best supporting actress. Emma Stone for the favourite, despite the fact she's a lead in the movie. Regina King, if Beale Street could talk. Rachel Feiss, the co-lead of the favourite in the Best Supporting Actress yeah. as well. Marina Di Tavira for Roma and Amy Adams for Feiss. Is this because they can pick, obviously, what they put it in for? Because mm. it is demented that Olivia Coleman, who's supporting, is up for best and then the two leads are up for supporting. That's crazy town. Don't they have the Oscar strategists, don't they? They get together yeah. and they yeah. decide these things and they yeah. think, oh, okay, we're going to have a better chance if we put you in in Best Actress, Olivia Coleman. I mean, it's working mm-hmm. for them. It is working it is, for them. It is, yeah, yeah. Happy with that list? Everything good? I mean, uh, great, great nominees. It's a quite a hard one to call, I think, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've, Amy Adams has been nominated. This is her, what, sixth, seventh nomination? Something like that, yeah. Without a win. Um, so she might get the you really deserve this already you think? prize. Interesting. It's possible. I don't think it's likely, but it's possible. Regina King has a sort of wind behind her, and I hope she, she does well. But, you know... We've seen the favourite doing quite well in other award ceremonies. So, uh, yeah, I think the favourite will just be split by the fact two of them are in there. Mm. Yeah, no, Mar- Margot Robbie, and she did all that to her hair in Mary Queen Scots <laughs> for, for no reason. Yeah, um, that's true. I think she's probably feeling a bit gutted. As I wrote down some people who could conceivably have been on the list, sure. know, the question is about snubs. Elizabeth Debicki for Widows. I yeah. thought was astonishing in that she film. She was very good. Mm. Uh, this may be my own personal preference for the film, but uh, Rachel McAdams for Game Night. Uh, she's the best thing in that movie. This is the category that tends to reward performances in comedies. You know, Marissa Tomei and mm. My Cousin Finney and others. <laughs> Probably at some point in history. I'm sure. Oh, Kevin Klein and Fish Got Wanda. There you go. There's another one. There's two. Um... Aquafina for Crazy Rich Asians again a really sparky comedic supporting performance and uh, you know that this uh, I mean this when I say this because you know I hated the film Tilda Swinton for Suspiria she dresses up as an old German man oh, what? give her an oh sorry that, that was sorry, Tilda Nick. Swinton? <laughs> that was Tilda I thought Swinton I that was the legendary old German actor <laughs> Jürgen Klopp Jürgen Lurgan <laughs> Jürgen Lurgan he was wow. credited I'd like to apologise to the German people for Nick DeSamlin Oh dear. Um, Denai Guerrero for Black Panther. Yes, just for her side eye. Yes. Oh, the side eye, yes. <laughs> what about Zoe Saldana for Infinity War? She's probably good in that. She is probably good in that. She does proper acting. Mm. Yeah, good. Or, an Oscar. or how about um, Thomas and McKenzie from Leave No Trace? She's phenomenal in that film. It's a really, really great performance and nada, not a thing. I am as outraged and appalled as you are, Helen. Thank you. Uh, it's really good. Oh, it's good. Really good. I will check it out. Uh, and I'm going to suggest also Cynthia Erivo for Bad Times at the El Royale. 
because I thought she was terrific in that. Okay. Best Supporting Actor, Adam Driver for Black Klansman, Mahershala Ali for Green Book, Sam Rockwell for Vice. Well, that's the one I'm really yeah, not sure no. about. Not at all. Sam Elliott for A Star Is Born and Richard E. Grant for Can You Ever Forgive Me? Mm. Like, mm. Sam Rockwell is barely in Vice. Yeah. If you nominate him for his performance in Vice, you might as well nominate him for his performance in Iron Man 2 <laughs> because it's the same performance. <laughs> he hasn't got the cockatoo. He doesn't, Crucially, he doesn't dance as George W. Bush either. So, so what's the point? What's yeah. the point? He's if he doesn't even, dance, he didn't yeah. even bring a cockatoo. Don't yeah. give it to him. Richie Grant, come on, give it yeah. to Richie Grant. I think we should we should probably just knock out Sam Rockwell immediately. With the greatest of respect and love for my colour, Ren, we should knock out Adam Driver because there's not enough to that part <laughs> mm-hmm. either. Sam Elliott, I think, is perennially brilliant and should always be nominated for everything just for having that moustache and that voice um, but I don't think it's the most amazing performance so yeah I would actually say Richard E. Grant this time Mahershala Ali's already got one he doesn't need it Yeah. So also come on. do you think he might suffer from the backlash against Green Book that's happening right now I mean I don't want it to win Best Picture if I'm honest so I, I would kind of be okay with it working a little bit alright so people who could conceivably say they were snubbed I'm going to go for my Paddington 2 doubleheader yes. of Hugh Grant and Brendan Gleeson, who I think is every bit as good in that movie as Grant, but gets very few of the plaudits. Do you think they cancelled each other out at the Oscar voters? <laughs> it's like <laughs> the favourite. People can decide. I, I absolutely with you on Hugh Grant. Yeah. yeah. He was nominated for a BAFTA. He's amazing in that Should have won. Should have won everything. He's great. It's delightful. Daniel Kaluuya for Widows. He's terrifying mm, in that film. Yeah, mm-hmm. give you that. John C. Riley for Holmes and Watson. Sorry, uh, John C. Riley <laughs> for Stan and Ollie. <laughs> yes. yes. He's yes, terrific. Yes. So you, you'd pick him. You'd pick him over Coogan. Yes. Okay. I would. I mean, Coogan's terrific as well, but because they're, they've clearly delineated the two, so Coogan is the lead, so he was up for Best Actor at the mm. Oscars, and I don't know that his performance is so good that he gets in the Best Actor running, but John C. Reilly's fantastic. Yeah, you almost forget that you're watching John C. Reilly in a fat suit, yeah. whereas Holmes and Watson, you know all the way through that that's John C. Reilly doing a bad British accent. Uh, Jonathan Price for The Wife. I don't think Glenn Close's performance is as good or, or, or works as well without him to, to bounce off and to Fair. and yeah. to go up against. Her performance is great, but it's nowhere near her performance in season four of The Shield. Oh, Jesus. At the moment. Can Lord. you hear about that in the uh, pilot TV uh, Funnily enough, Chris, yes, you can. Uh, Michael B. Jordan for Black Panther. Yes. Well-rounded, three-dimensional villain. Great stuff. Very Takes well your shirt rounded. off. Have you noticed that, Helen? <laughs> never, never occurred to me, Chris. Jesse Plemons for Game Night. It's this sort of comedic performance. Oh the Academy loves rewarding comedic performances, <laughs> don't they? Uh, Evan Peters for American Animals, who's really, really spiky and sparky and yeah, fun he is in very that movie. Good in that. And uh, Jeff Bridges for Bad Times at the El Royale because he broke my heart. You yeah. didn't need to say anything after Jeff Bridges. <laughs> I would just add to that Peter Dinklage in Infinity War. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the Oscar? There we go. <laughs> Why? Why? Uh, best actress Lady Gaga for A Star Is Born. <laughs> Melissa McCarthy for Can you ever forgive me and the happy time murders the one the first time (laughs) in Hollywood no okay Olivia Coleman Coleman's mustard for the favourite Yalitza Aparicio for Roma Hmm. and Glenn Close she's been close to winning before this year she might actually nab it for the wife I'd actually be happy with any of those five yeah Yeah. like literally any of them yeah they're they're all good Mm -hmm. it's a really strong card but I want Olivia Coleman to win so do I (laughs) even though she should be supporting yeah I'm happy with any of them I mean I think Glenn Close has home field advantage and the weight of again all of those unrewarded nominations in her past behind her and the fact that she is Glenn freaking close and hasn't (laughs) got an Oscar that's embarrassing for everybody Um, Olivia Coleman obviously we all love but you know she's going to take the BAFTA she's already got the Golden Globes so I don't know if she'll get the Oscar as well 
a Lady Gaga fantastic <coughs> breakout performance I don't know that that necessarily is the one that wins you the award mm-hmm. um, I think sometimes first time around you get satisfied with the nomination mm-hmm. um, Melissa McCarthy I think on, on quality is, is mm-hmm. fantastic and uh, Ilitza Aparicio I think it might be the same thing as Gaga, Gaga. If, <laughs> if it's your breakout maybe you don't get the win maybe you just get the nomination that's good I think, I call think, it right now Glenn Close I think it's closer Coleman, Coleman probably I'm going to say close okay it is going to be close. Uh, so some people who might have been snubbed, Tony Collette for Hereditary, uh, that's because the Academy does not recognise horror films. They're scared of it. Quiet Place was uh, overlooked for a lot of stuff as well, and they're just, uh, they're scared. Um, Nicole Kidman for yeah. Destroyer. Yeah. Mm. After she wore no makeup as well. <laughs> <laughs> what are we coming to? Carrie Mulligan for Wildlife. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joanna Kulig for Cold War. Mm-hmm. And then the left field ones I wrote down. I don't know whether it got a US release, uh, but if it did, then Jodie Whittaker should be nominated for Journeyman and Amanda Seyfried for First Reformed. Because again, that's a performance that has been overlooked and all the emphasis has been on Ethan Hawke, who was snubbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, that's a performance that maybe sets him up a little bit more as well. Who knows? But there you go. So that is Best Actress. Moving swiftly on to Best Actor, Bradley Cooper. Uh, he was overlooked for director, but he was nominated for A Star is Born. This is his fifth nomination, I believe. Willem Dafoe, this was the left field one, at Eternity's Gate, which doesn't have a UK release date as mm. of yet. And he plays Vincent van Gogh, van Gogh, whatever you want to pronounce it. Uh, Rami Malek, who plays uh, Freddie Mercury from Mercury, however you want to pronounce that, from in Bohemian uh, Rhapsody. Uh, Mercury Rising. Mercury Rising. Mm. Uh, Figa Mortensen from Green Book. Hey, I got your freaking Green Book nomination here. Uh, Figa Mortensen for his nuanced performance of a New Yorker. Hey, in Green Book. And then you got Christian Bell in Feist. I'm really, really surprised that Ethan Hawke isn't there for First Reformed, first of all. You're surprised? <laughs> I'm freaking surprised. Oh, ye gods. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. you got to do the arms. you got to do the freaking arms. That works particularly well on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yes, anyway. Yeah, looking at those five, I think Bradley Cooper might be the one to beat in this category. Ooh. Mm. He's done very, very well this year. Bless him on his first try as director. He's done really well. Well done, Bradley. Well done, Bradley. And everybody else feels a bit, I don't know, like the film maybe isn't quite strong enough or... There are Christian Bale and they've already got one. You know, he's always mm. putting on weight or losing weight. Like, I want Christian Bale to win his next Oscar for a film where he stays his normal weight. <laughs> That's his challenge from me. What is his normal weight? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Least of all him. What's his normal accent? Nobody knows. <laughs> uh, Jimbo, what do you think of this category? Hmm. Nick, I, what do you I, think? <laughs> no, I'm. I'm. I know Helen has a bit of a thing about Vice, but I thought he was magnificent in Vice. Really, really loved what he did with Cheney. I thought he brought that kind of growl and that persona to life marvelously. So I, I'm. I'm Team Bale actually for this one. Ooh, I team am. Bale. Yeah. I'm going to say something radical, rad and clean and powerful. I think Rami Malek <laughs> is going to win this Oscar. That would Whoa. be insane. It may yeah. be insane, but I think it's going to happen. Why um, though? I don't know. There's just, I think he, you know, say what you will about the film. I think he is terrific mm. as Mercury. It's and a good I performance. Think yeah. It's a really like vibrant, energetic performance. I just can, I'm not saying it should win, but I think it will. Um, I would love to see Christian Bell win as well. I think he's amazing. It's just Cheney is such a slippery character. Yeah, however good Bale is, you come out the movie, you're still not quite sure who this guy is, mm. which I think could play against it slightly. Yeah. Um, but no, it's a good list of actors, but I'm saying Malik. Wow, that is left field. Yes. Does anyone think that maybe Willem Dafoe, who people think was snubbed for the Florida Project, he was basically a mm. shoe, and then Sam Rockwell took it at the last minute. No one saw this nomination coming, so mm. might there be a surprise win here? He cuts his ear off. He could do. I mean, look. <laughs> he did it for real. Again, he's the great actor, 
you know, universally admired, who's yeah. been around for ages and doesn't have an Oscar. So can't count him out. No, I don't think enough possible. people will have seen the film. Um, I'd be surprised, very surprised if he wins. Did you know Martin Scorsese has played Van Gogh in a Kurosawa movie? I did know that. Okay. Um, best actor people who might have been snubbed. Ethan Hawke, First Reformed. Yep. Joaquin Phoenix for You Were Never Really Here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Terrific in that. Sam Claflin for Journey's End. Yeah. Okay. He was very good in it. Again, if we've got a US release, then Paddy Considine for Journeyman. And the two left-field ones, the two absolutely nonsensical ones that you're going to laugh me out of the pod with for even suggesting, Nicolas Cage for Mandy. <laughs> the Cheddar Goblin. He could have done a chainsaw duel on stage at the Oscars. With, with Linus Roach. Oh, William Roach, if Linus is unavailable, that'd be amazing. <laughs> Nicolas Cage chainsawing an 80-something-year-old man. And then, okay, okay. Oh, God. Josh Brolin. For oh Avengers God. Infinity War. It's a snap. <laughs> no? No. Hey, you know, I'm Team Thanos. I'm with you all the way. Why not? Um, the, the Academy isn't there yet. And, and I think there should be a separate category for, you know, CG-assisted performances. I think we've, we've discussed this in the past. Mm. Hang on, what? CG? What? <laughs> <laughs> That's just what it looks like, right? No, I, I think that because we can never draw the line between what the actor does and what the animators do and therefore there should be a separate category for consideration of those at some point. Okay, fair enough. I wasn't laughed out of the room but that's okay. And then very, very quickly Best Picture, eight nominees Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favourite, Black Panther, Black Klansman, Green Book, Vice, A Star Is Born and Roma. Okay, we're a month out but pick your winner right now, Nick. Oh boy, uh, Roma. Okay. No, no particular logic behind that. Okay. I just think it'll win. Sounds good. Uh, I want to say is probably Roma. Yes, there's a part of me think could it go to a Star Is Born? I'm just not feeling it. And the favourite I think is an outside chance. So yeah, probably Roma. I think if Beale Street could talk. No, I'm kidding because it's not nominated. <laughs> <laughs> so annoyed. Um, okay, snub question. On the sort of Oscar prognostication question, yeah. if you want to win Best Picture, statistically speaking, you've you want nominated. to have you you've got to be nominated, which is a, a real handicap for if Beale Street could talk. Second of all, you've got to have a Best Editing nomination, and thirdly, you've got to have a Best Director nomination, mm-hmm. and that does knock out. A Star is Born, it actually knocks out Roma, which doesn't have an editing nomination. Mm-hmm. But it does have a, a director nomination, so I think it could be the exception. But that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a big question mark over Roma. So, on traditional Oscar prognostication rules, mm-hmm. I would say The Favourite, which has both the editing and the director and some acting nominations. Mm-hmm. Those conditions also apply to other films, but I don't want them to win, so I'm ignoring them. Mm-hmm. But, like, Green Book doesn't have directing. A Star is Born doesn't have directing. But either did Argo. I know, but it's it's the exception, not the rule. I'm, yeah. I'm talking statistically. There's a lot of maths going on here. But at what point did the exceptions become the rule? Mm-hmm. Um, Think about that, Helen. Maths. Anyway. Um, I've befuddled you with logic. So I'm hoping for Roma, but I'm mm. not sanguine about it. Okay. I am going to sit on the fence and say nothing until the Oscars happen. That was a fairly in-depth look at the old Oscars, and I hope we answered Carl from Wolves' question to his satisfaction. If you want to have your question read out on the Emperor Podcast, you can get in touch via a number of methods. We're on Twitter as at Emperor Magazine. Use the hashtag Emperor Podcast or chances are we won't see it. We're also on Facebook as Emperor Magazine. And you can email us as well, podcast at empireonline.com. How exciting. Should we guest? Sure. As of a guest. Our first guest this week was meant to be on last week's show, but something came up and he chose to go in a different direction. It is, of course, Charlie Brooker, the creator and co-showrunner of Black Mirror. Its uh, most recent episode, Bandersnatch, was a choose-your-own-adventure. No, can't say that. Can't say choose-your-own-adventure. Branching narrative tale that debuted over the Christmas period 
and is fairly groundbreaking in use of his technology. And it is literally a Jewish journal. No, it's not. Branching narrative. Branching narrative. Uh, he came into the pod booth yesterday, in fact, uh, to talk to John Nugent. I was there to produce and I ended up pitching in from time to time. So sorry about that. But here we are. Charlie Brooker talking about Bandersnatch, Black Mirror and all that sweet stuff. Enjoy. Charlie Brooker, welcome to the Empire Podcast. How are you? I'm all right. Yeah. <laughs> Reasonable. Considering I'm alive, You're that's <laughs> one thing. That's one point. <laughs> okay, uh, good to know. Good to confirm your. Yeah. I, I, I believe I'm alive. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that'll do. You you believe you're alive, but there's a possibility that you're not. Do you well, think? there's always a. I guess there's always a possibility of anything, isn't there? Yeah. Um, yeah. I believe I'm alive. Yeah. No. I'm, 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 so that's all right. Good. Yeah. Okay. Good. We got through that one. Hmm. Good. So, first question. This is the big question that everyone um, wants to ask. Okay. Sugar puffs or frosties? Ah. Well, I always say frosties. Okay. Always say frosties because yeah. I don't like. I don't trust sugar puffs. I think they're called honey puffs now in Are they? supermarkets. I think so because like people don't people believe that you shouldn't give children sugar. Right. Like this generation has just decided to punish. The next generation, they go, no, you know, you can't have sugar. Like I grew up, I had frosties, and you know, I basically was eating teaspoons of sugar every morning, uh, cocoa pops, you name it. I had a, there was a sweet shop attached to my house, genuinely, when I was a very young child. Attached to your house? Yeah, my grandmother ran a sort of small shop in the. I grew up in a village, and my grandmother ran a small shop in the, which was attached to our house. Okay. Um, and and it, had, it sold a lot of sweets, like properly sweets in jars, you know, that sort of thing. And so I grew up eating a lot of sweets. It was only, yeah. I wasn't there for that long. But yeah, I used to eat chocolate button sandwiches. And I'm alive. <laughs> As we've established, I'm still alive. Yes. So I don't tend to, anyway, that's a long answer. And also, sugar puffs are a bit like, they, they, for me, they, they, I don't like, they're sort of too light. They're sticky. They stick to yeah. your hands and they're yeah. a bit like they should be packaging in a, in it, like you'd open a carton from Amazon and there'd be a load of sugar puffs that you, and then the <laughs> right. thing you ordered is at the bottom. Right. You know, they should be like packet. That's what I'm looking for packing chips or whatever they're called. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, like that. Frosties yeah. have got the texture, haven't they? Yeah. I mean, oh, don't get me wrong. If I ate them now, I'd probably have a brain hemorrhage or something right. because they've got so much sugar in them. Instant diabetes. Yeah. yeah. For Ooh, people who haven't God. seen uh, Bandersnatch, yeah. we should probably explain. Get cereal and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We should explain that, that that is the first choice in your new yes. Black Mirror episode, the Choose Your Own Adventure episodes. Yeah. Um, well, it's like a, it's a, uh, I would describe it as a, as a branching narrative. Right? Okay. Like it's, it's kind of like a, so yeah, you get to pick which, which, uh, every, every so often you are, you are presented with choices, two choices yes. uh, at the bottom of the screen and you get to, to pick one of them. And then the action continues accordingly. So it's sort of halfway between a game and a film, yeah. Basically, and, and which is nothing new, because there's like Dragon's Lair. I yeah. don't, you're way too young yeah, to know I, what I Dragon's Lair. I possibly Lair. am. Yes. Yeah, possibly. Well, you know what? They're just re-releasing Dragon's Lair on the Nintendo Switch. You've oh, heard really? Of that, haven't you? Yeah, I've heard yeah, of that. Yes. You flipping young man. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, Dragon's Lair like came out in, like 1980 something, like early 80s, and it was a laser. Okay. It was an arcade game. Yeah. But the, the, the selling point of it was it was full motion video. So it looked like a movie um, and you had a joystick and you'd choose left and right and it was sort of an action game. You had to dodge things. And it was sort of terrible because it was just incredibly difficult. But it looked astounding. Yeah. Um, so 
Uh, so in a way, Bandersnatch is the latest incarnation of a sort of 1980s arcade tech, <laughs> I guess you could say. But which side does it fall on? Is it Would you call it a game or would you call it an, a TV show? Or? It's certainly closer to like a... Well, we... Uh, and there was a lot of philosophical debate about mm. this while we were making it. Because in a way, it really is both. So we were approaching it like a film or, a, or an episode, of, a sort of extended episode, as it were. Um, but it also had gamey elements in it. So the the way uh, to write the out the story outline, I started out with like, we thought, well, we'll need a flow chart. We'll have to draw a flow chart. So I started drawing a flow chart on a whiteboard, and then it was like, oh, we need a, another whiteboard. Hang on a minute. So we get another whiteboard, and it's like, oh, and we need some flow chart software because it's too big. We can't <laughs> fit this on. And then so we got some flow chart software, and that was like, and then and then it's like, hang on a minute. We want it to be able. It wanted it be more to be more intelligent than that to track things you're doing and this that and the other. So then I had to learn Twine, which is like this programming language for interactive fri- uh, fiction. I nearly said friction, <laughs> but um, uh, interactive fiction, uh, which you can, which is free, and you can it's like twinery.org or something. You can go there and. And people use it for writing sometimes quite rudimentary interactive fiction. Um, but to me, it was like it was like it was it was a bit like HTML or something like that. It was quite I looked at it and I thought, I don't I can't I don't have the lifespan to learn how to I'm no longer young enough to I might die before I learn how to use that. But I sort of as with any of these things, you start sort of using it, you pick up some basics, and then as soon as you start thinking, oh, how, right, I can man- now I can make it do this, now I need to make it do that, and you end up learning it sort of by brute force. Um, so so that bit of it was game design, mm. because just to make the, the, like, for instance, the outline sometimes would crash, which is weird. Like a story outline, you have this interactive story outline, which played like a, like a you know, it... it it was. It looks like HD. It looks like a website. Yeah. You'd make it look like um, a, a story with hyperlinks in it. Do you want to do this or do you want to do that? For, just for the outline, and um, and sometimes I'd made mistakes in it, and it would go, you know, like integer <laughs> missing on the floor or something stupid like that. Uh, such and such string is undefined, and you go, oh no, the outline's crashed again. Um, that's weird. Like having to debug a story is yeah. weird. Um, so in that respect, it's very much a game. But on the other hand, it's very, very simple. Like, compared to games, games are much more complicated right. than this. And there are other sort of adventure games you can get that are much more complicated than this. So in a way, it's much more of a film. And it's obviously, it's on Netflix, so it's on a streaming platform. Something that's very important to us is that the... that was always very important to us is that the interface is very minimal. And it, the action doesn't pause in between mm. sections. So it's kind of seamless, isn't it? Very seamless, yeah. which 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 was something they were tweaking all the time while we were making it. Um, because it was, it, was, it was both story development and software development. So what happened was we kept... We'd sort of been tasked, in a way, with testing how, mu- how far you could push this on the Netflix platform. Because before that, they'd done a couple of things. They did this um, Puss in Boots thing called Puss in Book. Uh, they've got a Stretch Armstrong thing that they've got now, and they had this other... A uh, thing called Buddy Thunderstruck. They're all kids' things, and they were fairly, fairly basic. Mm. It was like, do you want to see this scene or that scene? And then you go to the next bit. Um, and so, what we were trying to do was be a bit more experimental and a lot more complex. But so, I kept sending emails to the Netflix tech people, going, "Can we want to do uh, this? Is that 
possible. We want a character who seems to die and then it's like we want the whole time... So it remembers that he's dead, so he disappears from the narrative and we'll write lots of different scenes. Is that possible and can it remember that if you back out of Netflix on your TV and then go back into it on your phone? That sort of, you know, because mm. you've got to have that continuity of experience. So we'd keep going back with lots of questions like that and they'd say, uh, we'll make that work. <laughs> and then they did. <laughs> but we kept thinking there was still going to be a gap in between sections, which is a bit annoying because it sort of knocks you out of things. And I remember I used to be a video games reviewer in the 90s, mm. CD-ROM was the, a big... Di- You'll be too young to remember this. I remember CD-ROMs. cd well, yeah, but only because they were <coughs> hanging on a mobile over your crib. Um, pro- <laughs> Good, I'm glad you remember no, CD-ROMs. I remember CD-ROMs. Okay. Well, they, um, they... Yeah, everyone said this is the future. It's like, movies, yeah. aren't it? So everything's going to be like a movie. And there was this game called Night Trap that came out for the Sega CD, and every, everyone said this is going to be... This is revolutionary. But, you know, the video quality was not good. There would be a big pause in between... Things. So I sort of thought it would still be, a, even if you were watching something on DVD and you skip forward a chapter, mm. it, there's a pause, you know, there's a little pause. And I assumed that would be something we wouldn't really be able to iron out. But they did iron it out. So it is, it, and the optimum way to watch it is on your TV. So you need a sort of relatively up-to-date television or a fire stick or a Roku stick or whatever, something like that. Um, and then you can just choose with your remote. And it plays out seamlessly, and the audio actually is pretty seamless as mm. well, because we thought there was going to be more of a gap. The fact that there isn't, and the fact that the, the interface is very minimal, because um, we were mimicking subtitles, we went round the houses on how that interface should work, by the way, because it has to be translatable into every language. Oh, right, of course. So, so I mean, there's a number of problems. So we started out thinking, well, we'll have no words in the interface. It'll all be visual. So it's like if it's Sugar Puffs or Frosties, yeah. it'll be, you'll see a sort of premonition, two little almost like looping gifts of like sugar puffs or frosties or like if it's like will you open the door or go to the toilet you'll see a little like images of a, it was we tried it out we did a, we filmed a little experimental thing it was utterly bloody baffling it, made no, <laughs> it was beyond the most experimental weird sort of nonsense and no one could understand what the hell was happening so um uh, uh, this, this is a very long answer to a question that many, many years ago has receded into the uh, bowels of my memory. Um, uh, but yes, uh, it, it, it is a film. <laughs> with some ga- but, but with a game... Spi- it's a game spine and film flesh. Yes, OK. That sounds really tossy. So this game spine film flesh thing... thing. Yeah. Uh, it has uh, the story is a person creating a choose your own adventure game mm. and sort of can't call it that can't call it I'm so sorry own, yeah <laughs> just thought I'd step in because that's your, important your legal team uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I would say it's a a branching narrative or a, branching a narrative. an interactive story right mm. yes mm. but he j- sort of drives himself mad making mm. this game was there something sort of autobiographical did it sort of drive you mad trying to yeah. It did. With the I mean, sort of weird parallels. That was you. always the, the the central premise. Was also was always because we wanted to do another episode that was set in the past. Because we did San Junipero, which mm. was an episode we did set in 1987, and in an aspirational American 1987. Um, but it wasn't really set in 1987. I've just spoiled it for anyone who's seen it <laughs> on their own head. Be it. Um, and uh, they um, and so. We knew we wanted to do another retro episode and we wanted to do... And I, I wanted to do one about old British computer games and stuff like that. Um, it had... Yes, so he... And, and then so the, the idea was always that there was going to be somebody creating this computer game and that we started giving them instructions. 
and they became aware that someone was there. Um, that was always our central hook. Um, and in writing it, I, res- I discovered quite easily that I was... I, I very rarely do any research into what I'm writing about. I just don't, because half the time you read things that tell you why what the idea you had was rubbish or wouldn't happen. <laughs> so so I, I just don't research things. I'm just lazy. Um, but luckily, I found that while writing this, writing it was its own research, because I started going, I'm going mad here, I can't work this out. Uh, uh, it, it became a bit like trying to play Tetris with scripts in your head do you know it was <laughs> yeah. just a bit weird um and i and i genuinely i had a situation and I, I, I don't think i've had before where i was writing it and i felt my head getting hot it was like like my brain getting hot like it was like like if it was a laptop it would start you'd start hearing the fan working <laughs> like and i had to get up and walk around and stuff like that and then go back and, and you'd get these sort of weird moments of vertigo where you'd You'd find yourself, even though there was no one else in the room, and I'm trying to write things down, I was sort of squinting to try and remember things. <laughs> just like, oh, geez, you sort of strain a bit yeah. under the weight of like trying to remember all the different pathways that you could be doing. So in that respect, it was interesting, and a lot of that comes out in the episode. And then, of course, what happened was there was a wonderful trickle-down effect. It's what's meant to happen with economics and doesn't, where they say that, you know, oh, oh, basically, if you just let, like, the 1%, they just give them more of the money, you throw it and then some coins, like, they drop some change, and then, like, we can scrabble around and pick it up. Um, that's what's meant to happen in the economy. But it did, it did happen in this with... Um, uh, unhappiness. So, so, so you'd be writing it. So me, there's starting out me on my own in my room, right? And they're going, oh, um, and there'd be, and I remember uh, emailing Annabelle or speaking to Annabelle, who's the co-showrunner, and going, I don't know about this. I'm going, I don't think I can. Don't think I, I actually don't think I can do it. So I'm sure I said that several times. And it's going, I'm going mad. Uh. And then, um, and I kept adding bits as well. So there's bits like that that are sort of reflected in the in the in the story. Um, you'd t- tinker with it and realise you'd added a whole new leg, basically, <laughs> to this thing. Um, and then, so, of course, then... So I had the initial burst of misery, and then everyone else had it when we had then had to... We had to work out... We had to then... I had to write a script. In fact, I had to work out how to do the... Had to, had to create the script. Yeah. In itself is tricky, because there weren't, like, professional script-writing tools don't exist that cover interactive fiction. They're all for linear stories. So you have to work out a system. So there's that was an initial point of pain. Then there was, like, scheduling it is difficult and confusing for everyone because it doesn't make sense. Reading, getting the script, printing it, reading it, like, how do you print the script when it's, like... Like, it was all... um, And then filming it, (laughs) acting in it, composing it, you know, editing it, doing the sound, everything was a a nightmare. Um, But but it was interesting because it was sort of... It was new for us. But knowing what you know now... Would you do another interactive episode? Could you, have you got any plans for another one? Well, I think that lo- it's like childbirth, I think, <laughs> in that um, I, and not having gone through the miracle of childbirth myself, um, uh, by all accounts, it hurts, <laughs> <laughs> takes a long time, and is uncomfortable and painful and a learning experience for all involved. And then people forget how unpleasant it was, and go back and do it again. Um, so uh, during the process, we were all saying, well, this, we're never doing this again. This is a nightmare. We're never, this is going to be difficult. And then as soon as we started getting into the home straight, 
I started having ideas for, oh, you could do that, no, you could do this. And I also I knew what to... It's also I know sort of things you can... Things that would work and things that don't work and things to avoid. Because there were things we had to cut out, for instance. There was a whole... There was a whole central puzzle originally in... Which we've left a remnant of. In one of the timelines, there's a bit where... In one of the sort of branches, one of the more slightly more obscure branches, there's a bit where... Uh, Stefan, the character, picks up the phone to ring his psychiatrist and he can't remember the number and you see this sort of flashback where the number is delivered to you mm. and then you enter it and he rings her. That was actually always a central puzzle and it wasn't anything like that easy. Like, we didn't just... Because in that, what we do is we just show you it and right. then you you, right. you enter it. And originally, it was a, a fundamental thing that was built into the, 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 the way the whole thing worked was that... You were going to get to a point near the end where he picks up the phone, tries to ring his psychiatrist, doesn't know the number, and that the viewer would go, "I don't understand. I don't, what? What do you mean? What? How am I meant to know this bloody number? That's not yeah. fair." And so you'd fail, and you get through to the end. Then you go back, and there's flashbacks. So there's flashbacks every time you fail that give you a sort of potted version of everything you've seen, okay. and they get shorter and shorter. So there was going to be, and we, that's bit, we show you a bit of that. There was going to be lines from people. There's literally still remnants of that in the, throughout the script where there's people going, you heard it here first, get a pen, remember the number, and then they say all the numbers. And people would get... So you're going to see these previously ons that got shorter and shorter, so you weren't going to be able to complete this thing until you'd gone, you'd failed at least twice. It turned out people did not understand. <laughs> well, it was it was a bit too complicated for people, but also, and this is terrifying in our modern age, people couldn't remember the number like for yeah. more than, like, 30 seconds. Like, so even if they'd seen it, like, and then 30 seconds went by, they're like, I don't know. <laughs> and who has a pen? Well, yeah, no one could remember. That was, why, that was why we put in a line where somebody said, get a pen. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I know now, right, maybe don't put in something that's that... Uh, tricksy mm. into the centre of the thing because right. that caused so many... Because obviously you've got a problem. Unlike if you do a film, you 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 might make a 90-minute film or whatever and you'll watch the edit of it. The first edit of it is going to be three hours long or something and then you watch it and you prune it down and it always improves as you condense it, basically, and uh, distill it or whatever you want to whittle it. Um, it's much harder to do that with something where you can't... There's, it, it's a different shape. It's not a line. Mm. <laughs> like, chopping stuff up, it's a sort of nest. So you can't... It's much harder to move things. We, we managed to move a few scenes. You can, obviously, you can edit individual sequences, but you can't just pull a bit out like you can in a film. Yeah. Um, but, but anyway, the long... That's a very long answer, again, <laughs> to the question, would you ever do another one, to which the answer is, yeah, I would, actually. And I've, got, I've now got... I've had loads of ideas, okay. inevitably, for, for, for things you could do. It's whether... Would, would I want to write it? Or would I want to oversee it? I don't know. I think I could certainly be a consultant. I could be like Red Adair. That's a... Now you'll be too young to get that <laughs> Red Adair? OK. Red Adair was a firefighter. He was a hero, so really I've likened myself to an international <laughs> hero. What a good name as well, Red Adair. Great name. He was like a bloke who knew more about fighting fires than anyone else, and so he'd turn... If there was a giant oil rig fire somewhere, Red... Oh, they're sending in Red Adair. I sound like I'm making this up. <laughs> yeah. How come they've not done a movie about Red Adair? It's crazy. Piper Alpha, you're, you're here? Did he do... No, I don't. Did Red Adair show up to that? Yeah. Did yeah. he? Yeah, he did indeed. 
Well, he's like a, didn't really like sort a it out, did he? Fireman did he? superhero. Uh, he yeah. tried, yeah. Like Fireman Sam the movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was made entirely of water and foam. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you wrote that, if you wrote up there's this international firefighter, what's his name? <laughs> Red Adair. Everyone would say that's a bit... Yeah, come on, you can't call him that. That's like calling him, like, to- super Tom Brilliant or something. You know, it's, like, just stupid. You can't call him that. Blaze Inferno. Yeah. That's what he should be called. Pretty much. It's a Buzz Lightyear sort of a name, isn't it? Uh, I told you I was going to ask about season five, but maybe Red Adair is... Red Adair is not is, He's not five. going to feature in season five. I can say five. very little about season five. Um, uh, Are you looking forward to getting back to a linear narrative? Uh, well, thing. weirdly, I mean, because we were sandwiching. So, so Bandersnatch, we did. We've actually, we actually shot. I, I'd written, and we'd shot a whole episode okay. for season five prior to to that because we weren't sure initially what we were thinking. Were we going to make Bandersnatch? Was it going? We were going to release it along with the rest of season five. I find it interesting that we can tinker with the form of what Black Mirror is a bit, which is something we like to do anyway in terms of the tone, which we've done especially since. Being on Netflix, we've tried to expand the tone of what it is every season. Um, so last time we even had like a rom-com in there, you know, with Hang the DJ. It was basically a rom-com. It still mm. had some Black, De- Black Mirror DNA. Um, and now it's like, okay, so now we've done a sort of interactive film. I don't know what you'd... Whatever we call it, gamey film thing. Sure. Um, uh, yeah, so it'd be interesting to do... Uh, we could do a whole mix mix of things. It's to say we could do we could do like ones that are all we could do I'd like to do one that's like a three parter. Okay. You could do a mini series based on one story. You could do yeah. like a feature length one. Or we can continue to do um regular in quotes, whatever a regular Black Mirror episode length is. It's about an hour. Yeah. Give or take twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah. So um but 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 uh, they're linear, so I can say that season five is linear. Okay. <laughs> so they're they're what you would call regular stories. So for anyone who was like, I don't want to make choices, I, I, I makes me angry. I thought <laughs> I want to sit back and just watch something. How dare you? How, how dare you make me do this? They can just sit back and watch it, like okay. they can ninety nine point nine percent of everything. <laughs> um, so so they're normal episodes yeah. in that respect, which is which is interesting. Um, which is fun. So, so it's interesting that having done Bandersnatch, now I'm having ideas that are some of which immediately lend themselves to doing interactive stuff. That was, an, again, an astronomically <laughs> long answer I've given to a question. I'm, I'm terrible at sticking to what the question was. I should have been a politician, except the, the world would be in an even worse state if I was. It would literally be on fire now. You'd be asking me these questions through a plume of smoke, which Red Adair would have to come in. We'd be begging for Red Adair, who's now dead anyway. Um, yeah. Was that was that an answer? I, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was interesting. It was, it was some words. It was an interesting <laughs> set of words. Okay, good. I can't remember what the question was. No, but I it, can't. But the answer I, was I, great. I can't remember either. But like, luckily, this is being recorded, so you could rewind it and play and go. He didn't answer that at all. Literally, I asked him what what his zodiac sign was, and he's just rambling on about interactivity, like a. Um, just time for one more question, mm-hmm. very briefly. Uh, Miley Cyrus has apparently said she will be in Black Mirror season she five. She apparently has said that, hasn't she? Um, mm-hmm. Is this an answer you won't be able to give a long one to? Uh, 
Look over there. That's, a, that's a weird. What's that? I'm sure I just saw a, a pigeon flew past the window and then, oh, there's a snowman over there. Look, a squirrel. Um, I can't say anything about anything okay. to do with the future. Okay. Yeah, not allowed. Uh, it's your show. I know. And now what you're doing is you're taking advantage of that. I have a tendency to fill any silence. <laughs> so I, but I'm now going to leave one. <laughs> That's my answer. That's good. Okay. Mm. Speaks volumes. Or does it? It, does, it, I mean, it doesn't you, speak you, volumes. I said nothing. <laughs> you heard nothing here first. Yeah. Uh, Charlie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So this week's pod has a sponsor, a wonderful, honest-to-goodness actual sponsor look at them gaze at them walk around them bask in the glory of their might and bathe if you will in the might of their glory for they are the economist the legendary magazine it's been going now for 170 years which is 140 more than empire incredibly and they don't have a bit where they ask celebrities how hairy their bums are which might explain how they've been going so long Anyway, we have an incredible offer for all Empire Podcast listeners. We're offering all you lovely lot a chance to get a free copy of The Economist for free. Absolutely free. Gratis. Did I mention that it was free? Now, I did economics at A-level and I find this to be a very good offer economically speaking. But don't be fooled into thinking that The Economist is just about economics and politics, and other things ending in X. It isn't. It's a wonderful read, full of great articles that will expand your knowledge and insight about the way of the world. For example, in a recent issue, there was a fantastic article about how it behooves us, conservationally speaking, to start making buildings out of wood. And the article even goes on to counter, at length, any worries you might have about how that impacts the environment and naturally the dangers of living in a big building made of flammable material. But there's more in there, much, much more, and they even touch on entertainment. Basically, it's the smart guide to the forces changing your world. And in order to get your free print copy of The Economist, just text MOVIES, MOVIES, to 780 that number again, 78070. And that word again, movies. Movies. Frankly, we're delighted at the Empire Podcast to have The Economist on board as our sponsor for the next couple of episodes. And we can't wait to get our hands on our free copy. Hey, you've welcomed them into your ears. Now welcome them into your hearts. A couple of quick PSA moments as well. So our next live show is in London on February 6th. Mm. believe it's sold out, or if it isn't sold out, there's maybe like one or two tickets left. Check www.kingsplace.co.uk just in case there are a couple of tickets and you want to come along to that. It'll be a lot of fun. But after that, our next, next live show has been announced this week. We're going to be in Glasgow, Glasgow, uh, on March the 3rd. That may not be a Glaswegian accent. Yeah, you're going to get banned from Scotland for that. Scotland is just a general accent, isn't it, really? We're going to be in Glasgow as part of the Glasgow Film Festival. We're going to be there on March 3rd from 4.30 to 6pm in the CCA. And our special guest on that show is going to be Sir Michael Palin. Whee! An actual knight who says knee. It's... (laughs) 
very, very, very exciting indeed. We may eat his fish in front of him. Who knows? <gasps> we shall see. Or slap him with the fish. Who knows? We shall see. But uh, he's an absolute hero of ours, so we're going to be very excited about that. And we would love to be joined by you guys as well. So go along to the Glasgow Film Festival website, which is Glasgow Film org and uh, check out and see if there are any tickets still available. Tickets went on sale today as we were recording, so hopefully there'll still be tickets available. Uh, if there are tickets still available on Monday, that's when they're open to the general public. As of right now, they are available only to Glasgow Film Festival members. So there you go. But we would love to see you there. It's going to be a lot of fun. And who knows, you can buy us a haggis. Will they deep fry my kebab? (laughs) Which brings us back to Avengers Infinity War. It's all full circle. And uh, we put up a special podcast this week. It is our Bradley Cooper Star is Born special. He came into London last week and I sat down with him and did a a fairly in-depth Q&A with him about the uh, the movie. And then Terry White, Ben Travis and I sat in the pod booth and chatted about the movie. Uh, Also a great length. So listen to that podcast right now. It is up for you on all your podcast platforms. Okay, so we talk about some movie news. That's us What has been happening this week? Can I throw out the most batshit thing that's happened this week? Please. Gillian Anderson oh. <laughs> to play <laughs> Margaret Thatcher on The Crown. This is so upsetting. I know this is technically TV news and therefore more the domain of the pilot TV podcast, but we have to discuss this because it's crackers. It's appalling because Margaret Thatcher, if she need be portrayed at all, <laughs> should be portrayed by someone dreadful. Like Rawhead Rex. Or I mean, a flame like Meryl Streep. Yeah. No, I, like, I don't even... I didn't approve of that film at the time. I thought it was too soon to make a film about her and uh, I thought it was a really weird, awful series of decisions that went into it. Mm. But I, I just think you don't take an international treasure like Like Gillian Anderson like Gillian Anderson (laughs) and then force her force her force I said Christopher forcing her I don't care we don't know what they've got on her but someone's clearly got something on her to make her play that woman get on the set Anderson you see say the dialogue just like we wrote it you see wow I, I just I don't approve I approve. Yeah? Nick, yeah. Tell us I what you approve. Because Gillian Anderson's great and she can do anything she damn well pleases. He's absolutely right. And that is the one thing that... Gillian Anderson is an incredibly good actor and uh, I actually think she'll do a really good job of this. In fact, you were talking on Twitter, weren't you, about the, the Gillian Anderson podcast special that we did for the X-Files on this very pod. Very sweaty week, special, yeah. A very sweaty special where she took us out to Pret-a-Manger and bought us coffee beforehand. Sweat-a-Manger. Sweat-a-Manger. It was a very hot studio. We should explain the sweaty. Yeah, it yeah. was very hot in the studio and it was quite ripe in there. It, I should I point out she smelled very fragrant. It was me and Nick that were providing the, <laughs> the odours. But uh, she was lovely about it. Listen, I can see where you're coming from, Helen, but Margaret Thatcher is a British hero. How dare you? And uh, the greatest prime minister, this... Hang on. No, no, no. No, uh, no. no. But it could be interesting. It could be... This is good casting. I think that uh, she might bring out some nuance. She might bring some humanity to the milk snatcher. <laughs> She might be great in this. And, oh, I've uh, no doubt she'll be great. Yeah. I'm not saying she won't be great. Yeah. I'm saying that Margaret Thatcher doesn't deserve great. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. So we know that Peter Morgan, the way the crown is structured, was going to have to get to Margaret Thatcher eventually because it's about no, following they the queen. Had her, no, they should have had her off. Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, just have her off screen. Have people just slagging her screen. off yeah. behind her back. I mean, there are some pretty bad prime ministers after Thatcher as well. Aren't mm. they just going to skip bad prime ministers? Because no, they shouldn't, we, they shouldn't be skip them. Five minutes long. They should just have them people talking about them behind their back. No, you could have little, little glimpses of her, like Thanos, <laughs> and then she gets up and goes, I'll do it myself. And then it sets up the... But um, it doesn't have to be played by Gillian Anderson. That's I, all I'm saying. I have a, I have an alternative suggestion. Mm-hmm. Brendan O'Carroll. 
<laughs> Mrs. Thatcher's boys. Absolutely. That's where we should go. Yes. I, I'm, I'll basi- that. I'm basically waiting for the crown to turn into a Fast and Furious kind of thing with Prince Philip and his auto exploits. Yeah, because uh, uh, the Duke's a hazard. That was my yeah. favourite tweet from that particular incident. That was good, good wasn't it? Mm. That was pretty good. All right, enough of that nonsense. Uh, we endorse this, but not necessarily. You can't have a bad actor playing that part, Helen. You can't. You can't sabotage your show just because Margaret Thatcher was the worst. A human, a human bin suit. Just you can't do that. I disagree slightly that that is the week's most bonkers news because Nicholas Cage has been cast in an H.P. Lovecraft adaptation as Margaret Thatcher. As Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> not as Margaret Thatcher. He is teaming up with legendary director Richard Stanley to do Color Out of Space. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Legendary. sorry, I need to go back. <laughs> what? <laughs> legendary director Richard Stanley. He's got a good hat in this photo I'm looking at. Okay, fair I'm enough. calling him legendary. Yeah, H.P. Lovecraft is insane on a, on a good day. Uh, Nicholas Cage is also insane on a good day. Put the two together, and there will be many good days. Many Cthulian horrors. Is, I was about to say, is he playing Cthulhu, the Might ancient be. one? <laughs> we can only hope. Uh, Richard Stanley, of course, is the director of Hardware, which is a British uh, sci-fi classic from the 1990s. Good film. Uh, and then he was the director on the notorious The Island of Dr. Moreau. If you haven't seen the documentary <laughs> about that movie, what's it called, Nick? I can't remember what it's called. Oh, it's experiments. Terrible experiments. Um, check it out. But anyway, there's a really good documentary about Richard Stanley and how The Island of Dr. Moreau went horribly, horribly wrong. And he was fired from the project and then had to sneak back onto the project, uh, disguised as, a, as an extra. John Frankenheimer was brought in to finish the film and then Fal Kilmer was playing up. It was, it's an incredible story, so check it out. But he hasn't made a movie since 2002. As I say, legendary. <laughs> so this could be exciting. Anything that has Nicolas Cage in it is going to get my vote. But I think the biggest casting news of the week, weirdly enough, concerns the many saints of Newark which is the Sopranos prequel movie mm. that is being directed by Alan Taylor and co-written by David Chase, the creator of The Sopranos. And it's going to be set in 1967 against the backdrop of the Newark riots. Yep. And this week, we've been wondering for a long, long time since this project uh, was announced whether we were going to see a young Tony Soprano. And this week, it was confirmed that not only are we going to see a young Tony Soprano, but he's going to be played by Michael Gandolfini, the son of James Gandolfini. Yeah. Did you hear the the new theme tune which begins, Woke up this morning, cast myself a son. (sighs) What the frick was that? (laughs) Hey, you got me doing the frick of mine, and I'm shaky. Uh, We have. Yeah. What do you think of this? This is exciting news. It is actually exciting news, because, I mean, who can play James Gandolfini? Small James Gandolfini seems like a perfect (laughs) choice. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by this film. Absolutely fascinated by it. Nick, what are your um, thoughts on Gandolfini Jr.? I haven't seen his work, I'll be honest, um, but he uh, is the son of James Gandolfini, so I will give him the benefit of the doubt. But I'm, I'm excited by this as well. It's, his it's his the, work in looking possibly like his father is excellent. <laughs> He's in The Juice, which I imagine you would have watched. I haven't actually. Being the TV Juice, man. no, that's true, that's but The Juice is one of the ones on my, on my to-watch list. Being David Simon man as well. Indeed. Uh, I'm excited. I mean, I'm, I'm generally sceptical about prequels. I don't think many of them turn out well, so I'm nervous on that score. But it's David Chase and... Uh, mm. And the director of Thor The Dark World. What could possibly go wrong? Indeed. I just hope there's lots of gabagoo. <laughs> but this is cool. This is exciting. And also, you know, you know that they put him through a rigorous audition process to avoid accusations of nepotism or accusations of sentimentalism uh, I guess as well and apparently he aced it every single time and 
it might be even slightly eerie watching someone because he does bear a yeah. real resemblance to his dad. He really does. Um, it might be quite emotional as well. Mm. But uh, yeah, very, very exciting stuff. Um, just looking to see if there's anything else worth talking about. And Mystic I think- Pizza, the musical. Come on. <laughs> yes. Come on. I just saw that film for the first time over Christmas. And? What do you think? And uh, I quite liked it. Matt Damon's in it for seven seconds. Mm. Did you think what this needs is is songs? Yes. I wanted more music. (laughs) Frankly, I wanted a pizza. And Waitress is about to open in London. Yes. Yes, So, I mean, it's not a big step from the pies and Waitress to the pizzas and Mystic Pizza. Yep. You see the Mystic Pizza first and then go to Waitress Mm -hmm. and have a pie afterwards. Amazing. Will it be be people in a pizza costume singing songs? Is that what's... I don't think so, no. It's about no. three young women in a small New England town over the summer. They all work at the pizza parlour together and they all have various romantic and life travails. It's very Gilmore Girls-y, I thought. It's kind of a bit of a yeah. proto-Gilmore Girls. But there's a running thing about the pizza re- uh, sauce recipe. So yes. I imagine there'll be a big musical number about that. <laughs> so the pizza isn't actually mystic? Uh, the town is called Mystic, <laughs> right. and it's pizza from the town of Mystic. Well, that's so just missoul entirely. It's basically supernatural that's with, what I'm saying. with tomato sauce. Yeah, with toppings. Golly. Uh, one of my favourite rumours this week was the rumour that uh, Gambit, Channing Tatum, may actually have to direct it in order to get this thing to the big screen. <laughs> Are they still talking about doing that? They're still I talking mean, about doing that, yeah. Yeah. And Ryan Reynolds did talk about Deadpool 3 this week, but yes. didn't say anything reliable, so, no. you know, that's not quite <laughs> <He said> nothing <laughs> reliable. He said they may have to reboot it again. They may, they may be rebooting it for Deadpool 3. But the thing is, we don't know anything about anything until no. the Disney Fox thing goes exactly. through. So it yeah. might all be, you know, pissing in the wind. Who knows? Mm. Right, that's it for the news section, except for one more thing. <gasps> we need to do a big old shameless plug for the new issue of Empire! Very exciting stuff. Empire, the world's biggest movie magazine, the new issue is on sale right now in all good and evil news agents, and it has on its cover... You wouldn't like it, Chris. What is it? It's something that you're famously anti. It's (sighs) Women. It's a Marvel movie. Oh, Marvel movies, yes. Sorry, sorry. Uh, Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel. Very, very exciting. Uh, (laughs) me! Terry White... Our esteemed editor and fearless leader mm. went on set of Captain Marvel in Atlanta. I want to say Atlanta. I want to say Atlanta. Hung out with Brie Larson. Uh, hung out with Sam Jackson. Hung out with Jude Law. Probably. And uh, and got the skinny, the full skinny on Marvel's Captain Marvel, which is their 21st movie, but the first to feature a lady in the title role. Mm. Well, no, the second to feature a lady in a title role. After Ant-Man and the Wasp. But first solo lady. I get so confused about this stuff. Mm, yeah. I know. But, okay. So after Ant-Man and the Wasp Woman, now we have <laughs> Captain Marvel. So that's very, very exciting. That's yes, cool. Yes, it is. And the subs cover is amazing. It's gorgeous. Way as well. it really, really cool. So Captain Marvel's on the cover, but also inside we've got loads of great stuff. There's loads of great stuff inside the issue, as Chris Evans once said. Uh, we have a big old celebration as part of our Empire 30 celebrations, birthday celebrations, a big old celebration of Edgar Wright, including a 14-page, Nick? Yeah, 14 14-page oral history of Edgar Wright, which is just a whole bunch of people, including his mum and his dad, yeah. John Hamm, the aforementioned Chris Evans. Wait, his dad is John Hamm? <laughs> no, there was a comma there. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so, and... Michael Sarah. Michael Sarah. Simon Pegg. Nick Frost. Other people. <laughs> <laughs> that was where I ran out. They're all in there. It's going to be amazing. Everyone, is, everyone Edgar has ever met yeah. will pass by on the street we talk to. Yeah. And he answers your questions as well. Other features in the issue include? We got a big old Oscar special. 
That's we good. talked to lots of people. Olivia Coleman, Regina King, Richard E. Grant, Adam McKay for Vice. Uh-huh. We talked to a few people who are unfairly did not get nominated, like yep. Ethan Hawke and uh, Barry, Barry Jenkins. Jenkins. And then we, we got a big old Empire interview with Kenneth Branagh. Brenna. Kenny B. Kenny B. Helen, did you do that? No, I didn't. You didn't do that? Yeah. Who did that? Ollie did that. Ollie did. You were meant to do that? Yes. You couldn't do that? Yeah. Ah, so Ollie did point? It. It's fine. Don't worry it's about totally me. It's totally fine. Oh, it's fine. You would be too Northern Irish. Is that why you were worried about putting <laughs> yeah. you in a room with Kenny B? It wouldn't have made any sense. <laughs> okay, <either>. fair enough. <laughs> it's a great uh, shoot. Yeah. It's vibrant. It's colourful. Uh, he wears some very nice suits. And he talks about Shakespeare. Hurrah! There's loads of great stuff as well in the news section and the review section, the home entertainment section that I edit. I can't remember what's in there, but it's really, really good. <laughs> this is the problem about doing a, a monthly magazine and a weekly podcast. I have no idea what day it is. It has an excellent masterpiece on the film Swingers. About Ali Gray. Indeed. And you know it must be excellent if you had nothing to do with it and you're recommending it. Absolutely that, yes. Okay, good. So there you go. That is in the new issue of Empire. You can check out what's in there uh, on the website, empireonline.com, or by simply going to the news agent and flicking through it. But do buy the magazine at the end of it, you tight bastards. Pair of wages. <laughs> mm. That's all I ask. Daddy needs a new pair of shoes. Hey, Daddy needs a new pair of freaking bowling shoes. My wife and I go to New York in a couple of weeks' time, and I'm working on this. Yeah, this is how I'm going to blend in. I'm fairly certain that's classed as a hate crime over <laughs> there. It's going to be totally fine. They're going to be going, what's your business in New York, sir? And I'm going to go, hey, I'm here to go to freaking Brooklyn. Get out of my business. I think you're going to be cast in the Sopranos prequel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, precisely. I think we can guarantee him being turned back at the board. <laughs> uh, it's not going to happen. Harsh, no. harsh but fair. All right, that's it for movie news. Shall we have another guest? Yes. Let's have another guest. Why not? Uh, who should we have? Nicole Kidman? Yeah, I should apologise for this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, she yeah. doesn't need an introduction. She's Nicole Kidman. She's been, she's brilliant in everything from yeah. Dead Calm to this week's Destroyer. Batman Forever. To Die For. She is to die for. Mm. And why did you say Batman Forever? Honestly, I'm trying to paint a picture of this woman who makes no <laughs> bad calls. of Batman Forever is not the worst. It's not. Dr. Don't... Chase Meridian. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Which is not, in fact, the name of a hotel. Why do you have to apologise for this, James? Because you inflicted me upon her. And I went in with all my technical nails and forgot to press record on the recorder <laughs> and then had to restart the interview and then apologised to it with a torrent of F-bombs, which she took in very good grace, and then okay. proceeded to be a blithering idiot for 15 minutes. You are the real destroyer. <laughs> I really am. I was the destroyer in this particular interview. So oh with that God. in mind, enjoy. Enjoy. Here we go. Nicole Kidman. Bloody hell. Absolute honour to welcome to the Empire Podcast, Nicole Kidman. How are you? I'm very well. Now, as we were just saying, before we realised it wasn't recording, LA has rarely <laughs> looked... Before you went, oh! Before I went, oh, fucking hell, this isn't working, and blamed it entirely on the equipment. But we'll pretend and that I didn't I sat happen. here smiling. Yeah, consumer professional, <laughs> thinking, what the fuck is this guy doing? Um, Who is this amateur? Is he? Empire? No. Dreadful hacks. Um, yes, LA has rarely looked as bleak as it does in this film. And what I was saying is, Karen described this as mm. an odyssey through the streets, of LA and it does feel a bit like the city's a character in the film. Do you think that's a fair way of describing it? Yeah, I mean it, we were shooting on the streets of LA. Mm. Uh you know, this was a particular amount of money to spend on this film, so it requires a certain type of filmmaking. Yeah. We had a female DP who was viewing it, you know, through her lens um in terms of the female gaze. So yeah. it has it's tough, this film, but it's very, um, I still see it as very 
emotional as much as there's a tough um, quality to the film I think that there's you can really feel the emotion of this of this woman and a lot of that is how she depicts LA as well it's desolate it's sunny as well at times Mm. but it's lonely but not warm sunny it's no yeah there's a real nihilism to it yeah and then there's that kind of you're on the streets the street fighting which is shot in that very bare bones way yeah there's no special effects in this film at all so um it's rough and tough Mm. do you i mean how do you feel about la generally did it give you a new perspective on it or no i think I saw, I mean, I saw locations in this that I've never seen in films before, Mm. but that's because Karen and her husband who co-wrote the script, um, they have a viewpoint on Los Angeles that comes from being inhabitants of the city. So they know places and they've discovered places and they know how to shoot that city in a way that hasn't been shot before. Yeah, and that, that really comes across. And that's across. really hard. Yeah, because yeah. LA features in almost every film. <laughs> yeah. Does it in one yeah. way or another. Yeah. To see it in a different light is quite yeah. impressive. But we don't just see the city in a different light. This is a very different role for you. So you play Erin Bell, an LAPD detective. And when we first see her, she's kind of red-eyed, slept in her car, shuffling along, looks like she's either come off or in the middle of a massive bender. There's obviously mm. a lot more to it than that mm. as the film unfolds but it's it's a different kind of role for you yeah very different <laughs> <laughs> yeah which is you know that's a wonderful thing as an actor mm. to go gosh I've never been into this territory before and a lot of times the way you're interpreted or the way you're handled is because the director who is interpreting you or helping you along um, views you differently mm. so I was just amazed that Karen took the risk of casting me in this. I wasn't her first choice. And so I wasn't even, I think, in her her idea of of who to cast. And I read the script and just responded to it. And then I'd I'd met with her a couple of years prior because I'm very interested in supporting female directors. and, And I thought she was really, you know, she's a very strong vision in terms Mm. of the invitation was really really good and I loved um, Girl Fight I saw that years ago so I was just interested in what she was up to and then when I heard she was attached to this I put my hand up and said oh maybe it would be something you'd be interested in me for and we met and we talked and we and we just kind of went yeah let's let's jump in together because you talk about girl fight, but you look at other Karen's other films, whether it be uh, Aeon Flux or, or Jennifer's mm. Body, the kind of, I guess, common theme is sort of female protagonists who will not be constrained by kind of the box that society wants to put them in. Yeah. Was that kind of the appeal partly here as well? Yeah. I mean, this is, you don't see this type of um, woman on screen very often no. because she's very... I mean, people say, I mean, she's uncompromising, she's difficult, mm. she's flawed... But I feel her emotionally. I mean, she's a woman who does not express herself, cannot say, I love you, is very um, damaged and and beaten down and been given certain cards in life that she's pissed off about, you know. And um, I found her very fascinating and compelling. She does feel very fresh. I hope audiences do, you know, but it's a hard... It's a hard sell, but at the same time, I've always chosen that road that's, you know, probably tougher because <laughs> I'm a huge believer in film surviving and I love for independent films to exist and I love to be part of this film industry mm. that operates under the the big studio sort of system. Yeah. 
I'm a huge supporter of it. Will always have always been. Will always be. Well, you can do very interesting things, and I think she I'm feels an oddball. <laughs> well, she's an oddball character in this, but in a, in an, an interesting way because she. Like a lot of the people who've written about her said, "Oh, it's a surprising. It's a new character," and that is true. But I do wonder whether there's an element of gender expectation there, where this kind of tortured, traumatized, grizzled mm. cop, were it male, mm. would be more familiar. And it feels a little yeah. like you, like you and Karen, are kind of deliberately playing with that expectation. Yeah. Well, not so much me because I just go in emotionally. I'm just like, yeah. okay, what do I need to do and how do I find this person? I mean, I've met people like this, so mm. I know. Um, I've seen and experienced a lot in my life. But for Karen, who's, it's her story and it's her vision and I'm sure she's doing that. I mean, my job is not to be stepping outside of it and looking at it that way. My job is to embody it. Mm. And bring it to life. And you do very much. And it's, it's had a lot of conversation about this film, uh, in no small part because of the physical transformation and the prosthetics, which in some ways kind of films a bit of a shame because it feels like in so many ways that's almost the least interesting part of this film. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, because it is... I hope. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I love that that I'm allowed to go to the place of transforming. Yeah. I've never been attached to my own identity in terms of a character because, uh, you know, what I came from, the way I started, the way I was trained is that you create a character. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing to be given um, as an actor is the ability to do that. And I don't want to be pigeonholed. So. Of course. But at the same time, I'm very protective of the mystery of filmmaking because yeah. once you start dissecting that I think people as much as they want the information they don't mm. right human nature yes yes tell me everything and then oh now I'm not interested you're like well um, I met with Bill Corso and he gave me these latex <laughs> yeah. cheekbones and, yeah. and I love the idea of people just I mean Bill Corso's a genius mm. but I love that it's just allowed to be yeah if I if it isn't then I failed mm. because I didn't imbue it with enough reality in terms of emotional reality but what you do with it in terms of transformation is almost more remarkable than the prosthetic stuff in that we see this character in two timelines 17 yeah, years you apart see her younger and and older. The, which is the other great thing is that they didn't say well we're going to cast a younger actress yeah. because i mean part of what's so heartbreaking i see is that she starts off in a particular place she is capable of love yeah. she is capable of hope she is capable of thinking um she makes some really really bad choices which impact her and which she's paying for for the rest of her life in mm. the same way as this other film that i have boy erase these are two women yeah. that make bad choices that that impact their lives in such a, a deep way but one of them in Boy Erase the mother is able and she's a real person is able to make amends for that mm. and apologise and change it Erin is in a different place and she's trying to do that with her daughter but her ability to even she doesn't have the words she's never had a, any kind of self-analysis she's never had any help really in life there's so many people like that in mm. this world because it feels like a meditation, isn't it, on yeah. grief and guilt and how it kind of eats you from the and inside. Shame and shame. Yeah. And how you pass it on through generations as well, which I guess both those characters but have in the common. the basis is she's trying to say to her daughter, please just know you don't have to live the life I've lived. Yeah. You can have a different life and you are better than me. Break That's the cycle. That's heartbreaking to me. Mm. Yeah. But very um, true. 
But when you play those two different age ranges, they are played as completely mm. different people in so many ways. She was full of optimism. She was full of mm. joy. She was know. still tough and yeah. she'd come out of... I mean, I obviously create a whole history for her and you get through one line at the end you hear her mother burned her with cigarettes yeah. I mean but I have to also say this film isn't violent and you know impossible to handle because no. some people said oh my god I can't bear I'm like no no it's, it's actually you can handle the film it's mm. not um, unbearable violence or anything but you know, hopefully it's sort of got a great twist to it as well. Yeah. But, yeah, I, there's a history to her that's um, there in her as a young woman that sort of leads her to make these choices. It's not like you don't understand why she does it. Yeah. And she's also put into being an undercover cop really young, yeah. way out of her element and not able to handle it. It's an astonishing thing <clears throat> she goes through. I read a really interesting kind of uh, piece, I think it was in Variety, where they talked about it, that the story feels a lot like, imagine if we join the story of Seven after Brad Pitt finds Gwyneth's head in a box and you follow him from that point on, and that's the kind of headspace that she's in when you meet yeah. her in this film. Wow. I was like, yep. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's crazy. That's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> just, just playing a character like this who has a lot of, a lot of, should we say, turbulent emotions in it, do you, mm. how much does that sort of take a toll? How much does it bleed through to you as an actor? Or can you keep those completely compartmentalised? No, I mean, I'm always learning. I'm on that road of, of learning how to still be an actor. I yeah. never say, wow, I've, I've arrived. Um, it's a constant exploration of, oh, my gosh, have I gone too far? Or now this has deeply affected my psyche? Or um, I'm able to shed this very quickly? I mean, it's different every time. This was probably... I, I really didn't quite realise what I was going to have to do to create her and to be her. Mm. But, you know, that's good, isn't it? A lot of times in life, if you know what's ahead, you'll run a mile. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And not just a, a great time for films these days. It is, of course, the time of peak TV. And you have embraced this wholeheartedly. Uh, Top of the Lake was amazing. And Big Little Lies was, of course, arguably the best show of 2017, uh, which is coming back relatively soon. Yeah, next uh, year. Yes, not, of course, the first oh, one based year? on... Are we? Is it? Oh, so by the time this comes out, it'll be 2019. Yeah, so this coming year. out this year. So the, obviously the first one was based on Liam Moriarty's book. Yes, uh, and she has a new book out called Nine Perfect Strangers. Which you've optioned which, as well, haven't you? And it's fantastic, Yeah, I have to say. So at a health spa, as I recall? It's a wellness retreat. Oh, sorry, a wellness retreat, of yeah. course. It sounds very goop. It's um, very funny and it's very dark at times, but yeah. um, she's just a great storyteller. And did she help with the story for season two? She did. Show? She wrote a 200-page novella and then David E. Kelly came in and wrote the seven-hour limited series, which is what the first time around we obviously had the novel yeah. and David then went and wrote the seven hours. So Was it an easy decision? I mean, a as, great combo, those two. Yeah, I mean, he's amazing. I'm yeah. a huge fan of his work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, was it an easy decision as a kind of star and producer of that show to bring it back? Because presumably when you started it, it was a one and done thing. It was really hard to get it all <laughs> back. <laughs> um, but... It was really sort of by popular demand. I yeah. mean, it was the it was, it was people going, mm. "Oh, you got to do a second one. You got to do a second one. You got to do a second one." Reese and I at one point were like, "Do we have to do a second? Do you think we should?" Well, you know, it was really. Um, and then we kind of had to reach out to everybody, and and slowly it came together. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know? And, and we have such a strong bond. Um, all of us, Zoe and Shay and yeah. um, Laura and Reese and I, and then we got to bring Meryl Streep into the mix. So. Which is very exciting too. 
hope and, so. And just before we end, I will say, so you're also, well, by the time we're out, you will have been in Aquaman, where you kind of play Aquamum uh, with James Wan, which is very exciting. But this is the first time you've been in a comic book movie since Batman Forever back in Can't 95. But that's... Was that 1995? Yeah, it was a while ago. Good Lord. Are you kind I'm of- terrible with years. People say, <laughs> remember in... I'm like, no, what was that? I suppose I... I I remember things more by events. Yeah, so. but it's amazing, yeah. I guess, how having done that then and yeah. doing this now, that Crazy. genre has <laughs> grown up to kind of engulf mainstream cinema. Oh my gosh! It must have kind of taken you by surprise, right? Yeah, it's yeah, nuts. yeah, yeah. Who would have thought that that was going to be the landscape? Yeah, but you know, I've certainly got my education now <laughs> in terms of. DC. Absolutely. Yeah, That's it. DC Universe. You I went to Comic-Con for the first time. Did you? Yeah. Was it insane? It was amazing because the great thing about Comic-Con is these are people that buy tickets, laugh, I mean, are obsessed, and you're in the mix. Yeah. So as a film lover, to be around other people that have that f- passion, it's kind of fun. And to be doing things for the first time... Uh, this stage of my life is kind of interesting too. Very exciting. Yeah. Nicole Kidman, thank you very much indeed. Thanks. <laughs> okay, so that was Nicole Kidman, which brings us neatly on to our reviews section of the show. And we begin with Nicole Kidman in Destroyer, where she plays an L.A. cop, Aaron Bell, who sets off to solve a murder in L.A. And that's pretty much all I'm going to say about it, because we don't really want to delve too deeply into spoilers for this thing. But anyway, here's a clip. Enjoy. Placing our agent undercover. She'll look right enough next to our guy. If we do this, we accept the consequences. Do you love me? You know I do. You chose to play cops and robbers. And you lost. Hell's Bells, what yeah. do we make of this? It's worth mentioning that this sort of, sort of takes place over two time periods, which is that we see um, Nicole Kidman in her sort of modern day thing, stripped down, completely free of makeup, looking haggard, frankly, mm-hmm. is probably the word. And then we flash back a good, what, 16, 18 years? 16 years. To see her as a young, idealistic cop going on her first undercover mission and... You see some of the events that led one to become the other, yes. basically. So she's Aaron Bell, yes. hard-bitten, crusading LA cop. Crusading is perhaps a strong word, but yes. She, she's on a crusade. At the, she's the, on a crusade, but perhaps not always on the side of the angels, I think it's probably okay. fair to say. And, uh, and certainly her methods are... Uh, the more violent end of the spectrum. So this is a film from uh, Karen Kusama, who, of course, broke through with Girl Fight, um, had a couple of wobbles since then, but this is very much her back on form. It's a fantastic performance from Nicole Kidman, who plays, you know, quite frankly, a lot younger than she is in the flashback scenes. Mm-hmm. And then it feels like older than she is, certainly world-wearier than she is in the in the sort of present-day stuff. And it's just such contrasting visions of the same character that it's a really, really impressive turn from her. Mm-hmm. And I am genuinely surprised that she didn't get an Oscar nomination for this. Mm. It is not the kind of thing that she's 
been cast in before. You know, it's much harder edged. It's much more. I think our our review compared it to Francis McDormand's sort of roles, and and it's, it has a sense of three billboards about it. This is not the kind of Nicole Kidman we're maybe used to seeing, and and all the better for that. You know, it's good that she can still surprise us after all these years. And yeah, there are other people in the in the film who are very good as well. Sebastian Stan, I think, mm-hmm. is is really really good in this. He doesn't get a lot to do off in a lot of roles, and I think he he shows a bit of range in this one. It took me most of the film to recognise Toby Kebbell. Yeah, same here. Really? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, he, I, whatever it was, I was like, that guy looks familiar. I've definitely seen him before in something. I wonder who he is. It's weird that for that part, they didn't get someone slightly more recognisable. Equally, like Tatiana Maslany, who, if people watch Orphan Black, mm. is amazing. And I did not recognise her until right at the very end as well. well I, she's also famously chameleon. Yeah, she is. Yeah. But wow. I didn't recognise her at all. <laughs> genuinely, the, the credits came up at the end and it was like, Tatiana Maslany really that's because the makeup in this is really really good so mm. a number of characters do the aging de-aging thing as yeah. well but Toby Cable I recognised from the off because I'm such a dead man's shoes stan well, is that the right is that the right phrase am I using that right I believe so who knows sure. uh, but this is one of those yeah. hard bitten mm. character studies uh, maybe a little bit Elroy-esque I don't know yeah. Nick. it's interesting Christopher Nolan is a big fan of this and he did an interview recently he interviewed he the director cool. and uh, it, it kind of makes sense because it reminds Remind me a lot of Memento mm. in the way that it's um, it plays around with time. Mm-hmm. It's a mystery, and it's got this really ravaged central character who's just messed up and tormented by you yeah. know her existence. And um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this film. It's right up my street. Sort of some baked LA noir with a really good ending that I didn't see mm. coming. Mm, Don't know if you too. guys did, yeah, but yeah. Um, no, I, I enjoyed I, that it. Definitely caught me on the blind side as well. Yeah. But no, uh, just not quite what you expect and definitely worth a look. But it is, this is a hard-edged, quite violent at Mm. times, quite twisted and upsetting at times yeah. kind of films so do bear that in mind if you're if you're interested it's in seeing not it. an easy watch but mm. it is a very very good one and i do think and we touched on this i think in the interview it's like there's been an awful lot of focus on the prosthetics uh, as sort of being transformational but actually the way she plays the character in the two different type periods is quite yeah. extraordinary and as you say i'm quite surprised this didn't get more awards attention but she's I'm, very very good i'm honestly surprised it didn't get more traction either i was looking at box office performances mm. the other day and it barely registered in the states which is just strange to me uh, I thought this was pretty terrific as well actually great performances all the way through nice explosions of of action and drama and movement and you get this you get these lovely roles for people like Bradley Whitford turns up and plays an utter fucking sleazebag yeah. <laughs> yes he does amazing sleazebag that's a lovely scene really great as well uh, and it's one of those movies where the the centre performance could dominate and overpower the movie but mm. it doesn't no. to its credit Four stars then for Destroyer. Next up, we have another Oscar frontrunner. It was nominated this week for eight Academy Awards. It is Adam McKay's Vice. It is the story of how Dick Cheney became vice president to George W. Bush and became essentially the world's most powerful man without anybody knowing. Christian Bale, as you've already heard, plays Dick Cheney. And this is very much an evolution of the style and the subject matter that McKay started exploring in the big short, but really in Step Brothers and the other guys and Anchorman 2 the legend continues oh Dobie sweet sweet Dobie anyway here's a clip I want you to be my VP I want you you're my vice well George I uh I'm the CEO of a large company and I have been Secretary of Defense and I have been White House Chief of Staff. The Vice Presidency is a mostly symbolic job. 
Uh-huh. However, if we came to a uh, different understanding, I can handle the more mundane jobs. We're seeing bureaucracy, military, energy, and uh, foreign policy. Yeah, right. I like that. Okay, so that was a clip from Vice Jimbo. Uh, sorry, the closest thing to Dick Cheney in this room. The leader of the Vice Squad. That's me. <laughs> what do you think uh, of it? It is, as you say, quite impressive that the man who made those dreadful comedies is also responsible for such masterpieces oh, yeah. now as Vice. Such. <laughs> and the Big Short. This is an interesting one, because on the one hand, is a character study of uh, Dick Cheney, one of the most elusive figures, I think, in American recent American politics, uh, a man who's been very hard to pin down historically. But it's also a kind of a bit of a civics lesson. Like, it talks through the sort of snowballing of his executive power in the US and it talks about the evolution or I mean really devolution of the Republican Party the American right into kind of what it has become now. It's a really interesting film it has lots of brilliant storytelling devices like the ones they use in the big short. It's not as slick in a number of places but some of them especially a kind of a, a fancy sequence about where Cheney's life could have gone at about the halfway mark I thought was uh, mm. was a lovely touch. I mean it is very much Bale's film I think he really really does capture the essence of Cheney and brings you not just the public yeah I mean really unsuccessful odour toilet (laughs) the essence of Cheney avarice the essence of Cheney Cheney for men yeah it's this is horrific on so many levels this film because it shows you just what went into I mean a dramatisation let's bear in mind it's not a documentary even though it has documentary flourishes but it shows you what went into the Iraq war and the level to which sort of amorality was so rife between him and Donald Rumsfeld and they position themselves as people who are just prepared to do whatever it takes to go to whatever lengths to achieve their aims and to consolidate power and they don't care how many thousands of bodies kind of stack up in their wake so I found it on the one hand incredibly compelling a wonderful piece of character work from Bale but also really educational and terrifying there's a scene which I'm sure didn't happen in real life but is really effective where Cheney asks Rumsfeld what do we believe in yeah and Rumsfeld just laughs <laughs> and yeah. like walks off and yeah I, I, I really like this film I think it's really a film about now even though it's kind of a historical yes, thing it it's really about how do we end up in the position we're in now when mm. there's a yep, glimpse yep, yep. of Trump in the film and there's footage from the California wildfires and he's pulling McKay's pulling all these different things together mm. and and sort of saying, how do we end up in this mess? I thought it was and really interesting. I think we talk about this in, in, in an opinion piece in this uh, this month's magazine, where it's about the films which tackle Trump by not tackling Trump. So it's, it's laying the groundwork for how Trump became without actually addressing him directly, and this does that, definitely. And Fox News, blah, blah, blah. Indeed. Yeah. Helen, you have a bit uh, of a problem with this one. What? I liked a lot of it, um, yep. and I thought, um, again, I agree that Bale's performance is great, and, and Amy Adams, and you know, I think generally the performance is really, really strong. My issues with it were, there were a couple of them, First of all, I thought that some of the storytelling flourishes that he used for the big short were necessary in that case because it is a completely impenetrable subject. And this isn't actually a lot of this. This is much, much clearer. And I think some of it, therefore, felt a little bit pandering. uh, And I find that slightly tiresome. Secondly, I think there's a moment, I don't want to get into spoilers, but basically there's there's a chunk, there's a scene at the end of the film that I think is left unchallenged and gives the wrong impression of really the whole film. Um, and there's a, a similar, there's a mid-credit sting that I thought was mm-hmm. badly chosen. And that left me with a really bad taste in my mouth because I think it, it undermines everything that McKay was trying to do. Now, we've had an mm-hmm. argument about this and I know that there are disagreeing opinions. 
I think it's really interesting because I've seen I've seen many many people mm. have that viewpoint on on Twitter. People like David Ehrlich, mm. for example, who really actively do not like this movie. Who think it's bad that it's a bad movie. I don't agree with that. I don't think it's as successful as The Big Short, but I do I do think it is interesting that there people have leveled accusations of smugness at this movie. Mm. Maybe that's right. Who knows? Is is there an issue as well? I'm interested to see what you guys think about this also. But The Big Short had an ensemble cast mm. and you know, you could spend time uh, as fun as Ryan Gosling was, his character was an absolute douchebag. But Steve Carell's character had humanity to him and it was someone he was trying to grow. Brad Pitt was interesting to spend time with. It wasn't oppressive in any way, shape or form. I really liked this film, but I found that spending nearly two hours almost exclusively with Dick Cheney, who is essentially, <laughs> again, I'm going to use that phrase, bin suit. He's a soulless bin suit of a man. It, it felt a little bit claustrophobic to mm. me and I didn't particularly enjoy it that as a cinematic experience as time went on amazing performance and I think he will win the Oscar but the character itself mm. it needed some there's, levity maybe. there's no one to root for you're right yeah. I'm not in a rush to you know spend another two hours in the company of those people but yeah it's an angry film it's sort of that and Black Landsman I think are the two really angry films mm. that have, have come out of the political situation we're in and stuff but mm. but it is it, I, I recommend regardless of that I think it's definitely worth watching it is in many ways off the Cheney <laughs> <laughs> okay should have seen that coming yeah yep. <laughs> should have seen that coming dread it run, run from it, it. <laughs> <laughs> terrible puns arrive all the same I will say as well though and I said this to Adam McKay in my interview with him last week that I am fascinated by this stylistic evolution that he is going through as a filmmaker because I think he's pushing the envelope in a way that nobody really has in terms of mainstream American filmmaking anyway since maybe Oliver Stone with the likes of Natural Born Killers and where he was just throwing every stylistic trick in the book uh, at, at, at the story. Because McKay has never really been a three-act guy. If you look back at his movies, mm. you know, from Anchorman all the way through, even even the other guys, they're not really beholden that three-act structure. They're basically just sketches strung together. But with a big short and with this, he's really trying different things, different flourishes, different editing tricks, scenes that will make no sense necessarily. He must have rewritten this thing a dozen times in the editing room as well. But he'll have scenes that just seem to come out of nowhere. There's an incredible stylistic departure. I don't want to give it away, but there's a moment where Christian Bale and Amy Adams, shall we say, start talking <laughs> in a different fashion fashion hmm. than we normally do, which I loved, absolutely loved. And he's not afraid to take these risks. There's a good fake out as well which I won't give away either. Yeah, I would have liked a, a, a tiny bit of a polish on that scene you're talking about because mm-hmm. I think it didn't work quite as well as it should have done. But, but it's bold and he's trying oh, yeah, I agree different yeah, stuff yeah. and I really like that he's pushing the envelope. Yeah, he gets the points for boldness. I'm just saying he could also have the points for polish if he'd polished it. You know what Try it harder, McKay. Gillian Anderson as Dick Cheney. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> wow, okay. Let Anderson be a goodie. Anyway, uh, four stars then for Feiss. And the last film we have this week to discuss is Clint Eastwood's The Mule, in which an elderly man takes to the streets in a car and people don't scatter in terror. It's so weird. This is a film in which Clint Eastwood plays Earl Stone, who is a professional gardener. And late in his years, his garden business is closed down, trying desperately to make ends meet. He turns naturally to the Mexican drug cartels who pay him to become a mule transporting tons of kilograms of heroin across the country, which he does quite successfully until, uh-oh, the DA get involved and the cartel, you know what? They're not happy with this old guy either. Oh, typical. Uh, here is a clip from the latest Clint Eastwood movie. Enjoy. 
was a terrible father. Terrible husband. Blew my chance. I didn't deserve forgiveness. Okay, so Clint is back, directing again, starring again. Probably wrote the theme tune as well, who knows? But anyway, Nick. If you liked Breaking Bad, but wished that it had starred a very <laughs> old man and been terrible, you, you might enjoy The Mule. I thought this was absolutely terrible, this film. Yeah, where to start? I don't think very much happens in it. It no. sort of sets itself up as a thriller, but it essentially is Clint Eastwood driving quite slowly around the country. I don't think it does. I don't think it started. I don't think it says so it was a thriller at all. I think, I think he couldn't be less interested in doing a thriller. Mm. He's more interested in just driving around, no, singing try, some songs. They try and muster up some tension with the cartel. They definitely the second half of the film is all about yeah. ooh, are they going to off him? And then he's got the DEA in the form of Bradley Cooper and Lawrence Fishburne uh, phoning in as two agents who are trying to stop him. And Michael Pena, don't forget. Uh, and Michael Pena, mm-hmm. I haven't forgotten. I had forgotten, and that ju- I didn't think there was any excitement in this film. And I thought it was a character study. It was nice to see Clint Eastwood back on the screen. It's been a while. I think it's been like eight years. But um, yeah, I, I didn't particularly like his character. Okay, I was a little bit more up on it. I think I think yeah, there's definitely too many driving shots, and you know, there's sort of like these subtitles that go, you know, first run, second run, and you're like, okay, this is exciting, but like it doesn't mean anything. You don't care yeah. like what what's the number mean doesn't yeah. doesn't add anything there's, there's to your no variation enjoyment. no he's basically driving around going i've got heroin in my back and yeah. and the, the cartels are going oh there was an interesting sort of attempt at like sort of quirky character building as he went along so he'll you know meet people and usually say the wrong thing and something incredibly offensive and then turn out he's not he doesn't mean to be offensive he's, he's just yeah. saying the wrong words because he's yeah. not you know woke. he's just calling people dykes yeah well, in fairness, they're calling themselves dykes. He didn't re- realise that they were dykes. Did not enjoy that scene. Yeah, that was odd. I thought it would amount to something, and none of it does, really, I'll be honest. I think he has a series, I said in my review, I wrote, I wrote the review for this, he has a series of teachable moments. Mm. But it's just kind of one of those amiable movies. Yeah, it's kind of whimsical, actually. Yeah. And I quite liked a lot of those little scenes of him becoming a slightly better person, even at the age of 90 or whatever, and realising some of the places that he'd gone wrong in his life, which I think at the start of the film, even though he's presumably 89 he hasn't quite gotten to grips with yeah. at that point and so there is a sort of a learning curve here and a sort of opening up of his eyes in some way um, there are some very weird scenes back at the cartel oh yeah we haven't mentioned the threesomes we haven't mentioned the threesomes and I, I say threesomes with mm. an S at the end because Clint Eastwood this film he has directed and written and stars in he, he, has, he, didn't, he didn't write it he didn't write it but I reckon he was probably standing behind the writer because he has two threesomes with uh, new bowl young women mm. in the drug cartel villas. Uh, I'd forgotten about that. If you wanted to see Clint Eastwood's 80-something-year-old man boobs, then this is the movie for you. I'm telling you, this is yeah, it's quite racy. Now, this is what you call shirtless, Chris. That is now, this shirtless. Is, yeah, this is, no, this is different yeah. from what you see in Supernatural, but I realise you don't watch Supernatural, but this is, this is not what that looks like, just okay. to be clear. This is based on a true story. Yeah. But... It just didn't feel convincing. I didn't believe any of it. And I looked up the real story afterwards, and yes, most of it was made up. And I just thought, well, what's the point? 
yeah, tell the story or don't tell the story. Well, the names changed. I mean, they, they they didn't even use the name of the real guy, so it is inspired by, I'd say, rather than, than based yeah, on. But I wonder how funny. many threesomes the, the other guy had, the real guy had in real life. <laughs> he actually had more, yeah. He had 18 <laughs> threesomes. He was up um, to his neck in threesomes. In this, in this movie alone, Clint Eastwood in his 80s has as many sexual partners as I've had my entire life. Okay. True story, fact fans. Okay, that's true story. That's I've, been, I've been married a long time. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> but the, I found the camera at work quite ugly as well, if that's a word. Mm. When it gets to the, the villa the party. and the parties, yeah. the camera is literally swooping down and, oh, and up and yeah. down the women's yeah. bodies. And it's like, oh, this feels really creepy. Yeah, that was that was super creepy, actually. And that, um, that was full on sort of Fast and Furious party scene. Yes, yes, creepy, yes, actually. Yeah, exactly was. Yeah. Tony is a bit weird. It feels because there's, there's swearing all over the shop and little bits of violence. And then there's full on twerking. It's 15 for scenes of extended twerking. I was surprised when Clint started doing that. Um, <laughs> but no, the, the scenes with Bradley Cooper and Lawrence Fishburne, I, they had the feeling of, of scenes that were shot in like an hour. They were so sort of yeah, nothingy and... But, but the, uh, there's a really lovely scene where Bradley Cooper and Clint uh, meet at the diner and they, you know, Clint knows that Bradley Cooper is a DAA agent, but Bradley Cooper doesn't know that the guy he's looking for is sitting right there and they have a nice exchange about like heat. fatherhood and about regrets no that's not what happens in heat but uh, it's better than heat if anything <laughs> they have a lovely exchange and uh, there are moments in that when it's amiable and you like spending time with this mm. character even though the movie makes no <laughs> moral judgments about the fact that he's just blithely conveying literally hundreds of kilos of, of heroin uh, every week the moral judgment that it is interested in making is the fact that he was never around for his family. And it takes mm. some weird, random detours where it forgets about his family, played in the movie principally by Diane Wiest, who, and I wonder if this is a victim, she's a victim of Clint's famous one-two-take policy. But she's not that great in this movie, which is weird because she's Diane Wiest mm. and she's amazing. Uh, and his daughter, Alison Eastwood, in this one as well. So it takes these weird, random detours where it forgets about them for ages and then will spend ages on his relationship with them. While meanwhile, there should be a thriller plot building about the cartel wanting to maybe kill him and the DEA closing in on him. But it kind of just forgets about it because it's all jazz, man. It is all jazz, yeah. but you know, I I was I was interested in it. You know, it kept me interested the whole way through. So yeah. there but was still some stuff there. I think there's a reason why it's done really well in the states. I think it's going to cross mm. the hundred million dollar mark this week, which for a man in his for a leading man in his eighties is maybe unprecedented. I'd need to double check that. You, know, you could maybe make an argument for Christopher Lee in, in Lord of the Rings and stuff, but as a leading man who anchors the movie, that's I think that's, that's it. Though I think it's the event of Clint Eastwood. Yeah, back. I think it had been since Gran Torino. It's been a long time, and I think people just like seeing him back mm. on the screen. Mm. And it's, it's a rarity really to have a guy his age. Huh? Is it really that long? I believe so. Yeah. Wow. It is nice to have him back. But if it wasn't Clint Eastwood, I don't think people would be enjoying this film so much. Okay. Three stars then for the Mule. I gave it three stars, and I agree with myself. There we go. <laughs> good to know, Chris. It is good to know, isn't it? And that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week. It is our last podcast ahead of our live special. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by Joel Edgerton. Ooh, we'll be joined yay. by Joel Edgerton, director and star of Boy Erased, and someone else. Richard E. Grant. Richard E. Grant. Thanks, Nick. Oscar nominee, Richard Oscar E. Grant. Oscar nominee, right. Richard E. Grant. So that's very, very exciting indeed. And then after that, we're going to have our live podcast as well. How exciting. It is exciting. So until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, is goodbye from Nick Dissemblian. I would just like to apologise. Clint's last film as actor was Trouble with the Curve. Don't. And with that apology, I say goodbye. Seems fair. No one remembers that movie. <laughs> <laughs> totally okay I mean, to overlook that's it. That's true. 
Uh, it is goodbye from James Dyer. Goodbye. You can hear me on the Pilot TV oh. podcast and download that on Monday. Hashtag James Dyer's hit TV podcast. Look it up right now. And it's goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. All right, and it's goodbye from me. I am off to perfect my Glaswegian accent ahead of our live show. I'm going to give it a go. Hey, why don't you deep fry my kebab, you mook? Hey! Oh, God, we're never going to make it back alive. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Listener.